You're listening to episode 49 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Today, we are going to stare into the void, and we're going to find out whether or not the void stares back at us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to, to do that, actually. Uh, so what Phil is referencing is that we have two very, very awesome creators joining us today on the show. Uh, they have both made, they're both making huge strides in the industry right now. Um, and their newest book, Void Trip, is releasing November 22nd. I am talking about Ryan O'Sullivan and Plaid Klaus. How are you guys doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you guys doing? Excellent. Great. Excited to talk about the book. Yeah, man. Me too. I think Klaus, are you there? Oh! <laughs> oh, just lost him. <laughs> the nieces took over. <laughs> so. Plaid is actually lost in the void right now, uh, <laughs> aka his call dropped on Skype. So hopefully he can join us uh, for the rest of this episode. Um, we'll be we'll be staring into the void, hoping that Plaid stares back at us. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, uh, Ryan. So this book, Void Trip, we all read it, all of us on the show, and we all really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's it's very very fresh. And so what I'd like you to do is, for the people who haven't had the opportunity to read it yet, could you tell us what Void Trip is about? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, Void Trip is the story of possibly the last two humans left alive in the galaxy going on a psychedelic intergalactic road trip to the promised land of a planet called Euphoria. Um, and without giving too much away, they they have a lot of trouble getting there. And it's the whole sort of, you know, <laughs> Is it the story? What's the story about? Is it the destination or the journey? That's the whole sort of thing we're looking at. Like the central theme of Void Trip, um, it's, it's, it's a road trip film, but in a film, sorry, story, but set in space. And the idea being, how can we be free in a universe that conspires to stop us being free? You know, how, where can we find freedom? Is it something that we find in the little places by playing along with society, or is freedom something we just sort of bulldoze our way through? Here's Klaus. Hi, Klaus. He's back. Hey. Hopefully. I'll just lab. explain to the guys like the central concept of what Void Trip is. I was saying it's a road trip story about the last two humans left alive in the universe trying to find their way to the promised hippie paradise planet of Euphoria, and they're just a pair of drugged out losers who really, really struggle to do that very simple thing. And I was just getting to the part where I was going to talk about the bad guy who's following them. He's this all-white, gunslinging, demiurge kind of character. We never give him a name. We keep him mysterious. We let the readers decide who he is. That's what it was, you know. And that, the, the idea being that, you know, he could be the Old Testament God not prepared to let go of the last two humans left alive. Or he could be this crazy bounty hunter that wants to hunt these rare creatures. Because they're the last two humans left alive, they could very easily be, you know, worth something to someone. And we never really get into that because I like the idea of stories that are deliberately vague to pull the reader in. But yeah, the, the, the basic premise of the story is two humans on a road trip through space getting really high on space fruit trying to find the promised land. Yeah, we're basically just documenting our lives. We're just so happy all the time. So wait, which one of you's Anna and which one's Gabe then? Depends on the day of the week, I guess. No, I think I think I'm probably more Gabe. I don't know, I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? I don't know. I'm I pretty think pessimistic. We're both. I think you are. But the entire story's pessimistic, so I guess I am too. Oh, spoilers. So I guess I am too. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think well, actually, one thing I've been saying a lot is that everyone has parts of each of them in. Like Anna's the young idealist. 
you know, right. who, oh who just wants to be free, whereas Gabe is a sort of older pessimist. What are we doing? We're on a podcast. And so like, the, two, the, the two different sides of every person, I think, are represented in Adam and Gabe. Oh, thought we lost class there for a second. <laughs> I just love listening to Ryan talk, man. He's got that beautiful British accent. <laughs> I, I I understand that. We were talking about wrestling for about 20 minutes before we started, and uh, I was enraptured uh, listening to him talk about Enzo. <laughs> Sorry, I missed that. My boy Enzo, now publicly. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys, you guys collaborated before on Turncoat. Um, so how did you guys come together for, for Void Trip? Klaus, do you want to... What, yeah, yeah. So I'm basically, yeah, it was just basically drawing a bunch of like retro, futuristic, '50s style space stuff for fun. I, I, I think Ryan had seen some of it, and then he was like, "Hey, I just happen to be working on this uh, uh, retro, futuristic, '50s style road trip space novel." And we tossed around the idea of uh, of like hobos in space, like people who'd be backpacking across the galaxy, uh, and then it sort of evolved into something even more meaningful and. I guess that was the, the genesis of it. Why why isn't the book just called Hobos in Space? Because I kind of <laughs> like that. Originally, it was called Space Hobos, and then we weren't I'm not sure about the name yet. And so I just started word playing a lot, and uh, I just kept thinking about the two big elements of it, which is like they're obviously they're going around, they're they're trying to trip, have a good time, and, but looming over the story the whole time, there's this void. You know, and then the wordplay just kept extending in my mind because the void can represent space itself. The void can represent the meaning of life, um, and then the trip can either represent the trip that they're on around the galaxy or tripping. So it just came to this crux, and it was like the perfect uh, distillation of all those elements. It, it can also mean like the, the trip's pointless as well. So it's right, exactly. they just it's a void for, yeah, trip. It's like a void trip. Avoid yeah. trip. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's how the name came up. So, um, I wanted to ask you guys, what was the uh, pitching process at Image like for the book? Oh, okay. It was, um, I mean, with Image, they get about 400 submissions a day by email, so we didn't do that way. Um, Eric came over, Eric Stevenson came over to Thought Bubble in the UK at the convention here in Leeds last year. And I told Klaus we had a meeting with him, even though we didn't. And Klaus like flew over, <laughs> lit the fire under me to make it, like, to get a meeting with him. And we, it was it wasn't really a meeting. It's just, I mean, he's a he's a publisher. You know, he's a, he looks at stuff. You go up to him and say, "Hey, do you want to take a look at this?" Because he's, you know, he's they're always looking for new stuff. They're not this sort of impenetrable citadel. They are actively looking for new stuff. So I showed him it, and he was like, uh, he dug it. And then yeah, I mean, yeah, basically Ryan just called me up and he's like, "It's a meeting with with Eric. We got to do this thing." And it was four days or no, maybe a week before. And yeah. I just I was like, "Okay, all right, we're doing it." And so I flew out, <laughs> and then I got there, and Ryan's like. So I think we can meet with him. Oh my god! <laughs> He's definitely here. Both got pumped, and then actually Ryan went out and like I guess he was excited too. He went to the publish or printing house and was like, "Give me your best paper. We're gonna print up you know the first six pages we had or ten whatever we had." He's like, "Give me your best paper," and he comes out. And he's like, "They just charged me two hundred dollars to print." This. Oh my god! And he was too proper to like. You tell the story, right? You're too proper. To yeah, I'll, I'll sort of went in. I was like, okay, I've got a good version. Best, best paper, best whatever. Had these really expensive printed, really like roughed out images. But then it came to the end when they were tallying it up, and I was too proud to not pay how much they had. So yeah, Klaus's flight yeah. Plus, plus the printing cost was yeah. an expensive pitch. Uh, exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, you we know, took, it was, we took a $1,000 um, chance, basically, to make this thing Jesus. happen. Oh, my God. Wow. I mean, you don't have to do that to get it picked up by anything. There's much easier <laughs> no. ways of doing it. <laughs> just... Hey, whatever works, though, right? I mean, you're here now. So this is one thing that Lobby was like, since, the, since it got picked up, because obviously before this, I was like super indie-indie, and now Image is a little bit more mainstream. People have been saying to me, like, well, what's the secret? I was like, well... There isn't one. There's no like hidden route into image. You just create good work and get it in front of Eric and then get a verbal commitment from him and then you you golden. That's the that's the secret info, guys. <laughs> we appreciate it. So now it. we know we gotta fly across the the ocean, track him down at a con, and shove your book in his face. That's the trick. Yeah, I mean he does a lot of the American cons, yeah. so that could be another way of doing it. Cool. Uh, what makes Image the right place to publish this? Oh man, they just they give so much creative freedom. Like me and Klaus completely own it. Image have just got the publishing rights. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's the fact that they give us so much freedom. They don't even really they leave it to the creators. Like the reason the reason Eric sees everything going through is because he is essentially uh, he's curating the line, so he's making sure that anything Image puts out is on you know on brand. To use one of those sort of horrible corporate words yeah and the image is great for that but it's also good because that freedom in letting us do what we want creatively also sort of bleeds into the business side of it too so we have a lot of freedom to approach retailers reviewers and sort of push the book however we want yeah. honestly the I mean, images is still with awesome creative so it's like it feels yeah. like being part of a bigger really cool club of people <laughs> so that for i mean for me that was a big part of it is there's a lot of talented creators at image and and they always seem to have a good brand. Like you said, everything they put out seems consistent. Perfect home, you know? Um, so yeah, I wanted to uh, move into like actually talking about some of what we saw in that first issue because uh, like Sean said, you guys were uh, gracious enough to give us a copy of the first issue so we could check it out. Um, and uh, one of the things that stood out to me was that aspects of the universe seem to be pretty heavily influenced by um, like Earth style, even though we know that these characters are like the last two Earthlings. You know, we saw... Um, a few spaceships that look like cars, um, and like both of our main characters seem to have like a pretty like punk rock aesthetic. Um, that seems to also be fairly reflected in some of the writing, like particularly in some of Anna's dialogue. So I wanted to ask, um, was that something like, was that look something that you decided on plaid or was that something that was like planned from kind of the inception of the characters and the universe? I think everything we do sort of, uh, emerges together in this, uh, joint venture. That's one of the fun things about comics, like writing, uh, working with a writer. Uh, it definitely starts off with one idea and then it just starts to grow and evolve. I know there was a very specific personality we were going for and it was sort of a blend of like a star child mixed with like a hippie. Plus I think Ryan has a major crush on Cara Devigne, so <laughs> loosely based on on her style aesthetic. And yeah, this book is just me trying to get her attention, man. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> no way to fail. But, uh, and the other thing, you know, we, we talked about wanting it to just basically feel almost just like a road trip and space is almost secondary or like not important. I mean, it's, it's basically the visual aesthetic on top of the story itself. You know, it, it could just be a desert on, on our planet. And then it starts to branch out and get a little, even the second place you see them is a little more just like normal vegetation. And then as it gets more psychedelic, it starts to get a little bit more um, spacey. Awesome. And then uh, I, I know... Um I got to check out the interview that you guys did with um, with Image Plus, and you got you guys mentioned at the top, right, that Anna and Gabe are you know uh, maybe the last members of the human race. Um, but you guys said in that interview, or Ryan said, I think that um, the book isn't ever going to explore how or why that happened. So I, I guess I wanted to ask, like, can you tell us a little bit about how Anna and Gabe feel about being the last humans, and like why you aren't interested in exploring that part of the the story? Well, I think it's because they sort of. 
the two of them are meant to represent the sort of the mindset of the human race as a whole. So we didn't want to sort of if we unpack that and start explaining like um, where the rest of the human race is or um, what their thoughts on the rest of the human race is or are, then we're gonna they become less metaphors and more real things. So we wanted to keep them as sort of symbolic of that. Um, plus, also, like in the earlier scripts, I was sort of talking about them escaping a planet together and it blowing up, and it all seemed a little bit like I just wanted to sort of jump into, uh, jump straight into the story, like the, the cold open for the first issue where they're just stealing fuel, and you slowly find out more and more about them as the story goes on. I always like things like that. And it becomes like a metaphor for our time because it's sort of like the human race is dying in a way, you know, and we have to kind of deal with that. Like, what are we, what's happening with us? And you'll, you'll see there's a lot of like, you know, we skirt around AI and what's happening with AI. And we, get into that more uh, in later issue. But, you know, basically, they're, they're in denial was the fact that, that they're raped. The AIs came for class. He said too much. <laughs> <laughs> Back into the void. We won't forget you, man. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it seems like Flad was starting to, to touch on my next question, but um, so just out of curiosity, is there an answer? Like, do you know in your mind what ended the human race, but it's just not important to the story? There's not. Um, and the reason why is because that isn't the focus of the story. And I'm a big believer that a story is only what's in it, not the bits outside. Like, the backstory mm. could, could be anything. Um, and one problem with comics in general as a medium is that it doesn't leave much yeah. to the reader's imagination because you're giving so many arts. Uh, you know, the art is showing so much. So we had to, so one thing that's always a, a struggle is to try and create mystery in a medium that gives so much to the reader. So that's why we're not revealing who the bad guy really is. That's why we're not saying what happened to the human race. We're telling this sort of small, intimate story about Anna and Gabe in their situation. They might be representative of larger things, they might not. But the story definitely does touch on sort of existential things as a whole. But we don't ever really get into explaining sort of paint by numbers where the human race is, who the bad guy is, um, or anything like that. I mean, it, it's it's because it's it's a five issue mini. We want it has to be very sort of uh, metaphorical and symbolic a lot of the time, purely because you've got to be really economical with the space. Uh, any space spent explaining these things, which I mean, they are interesting. You, I mean, but I'd much rather someone just was interested. Oh, I wonder if they explain, and that's all that has just engaged them in the story. You know. And I'm happy then just to be engaged to an, to an answer we'll never give rather than just uh, have that explained to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think, like, especially like you said, if it is only a five-issue mini, I'm more interested in figuring out what is Anna and Gabe's story than stories that necessarily don't have anything to do with them. Yeah, like what's going on in their head and stuff like that. Because I think a lot of the time with really short, uh, not really short, but like, you know, five-issue minis, four-issue minis, is that they become very plot-driven, very plot-obsessed. Because you've got this, as a writer, you've got this plot idea, you want to cram it all into four issues, five issues. But, but with Voyager, we wanted to sort of take a step back, not do that, and just focus on these characters, their choices, why they are the way they are, their motivations, their journey. And that, I mean, like, it's a road trip story. Like, it's, it's all about the, the journey, not not where you were before it started, not where you are afterwards, but where you are on that journey. And I didn't realize that until I just said it. <laughs> you heard it here first. So I've got a question for the both of you guys. Um, this is something that fascinates me about um, creation and how creation and creativity kind of fuels creativity. Um, so when you guys are working on Void Trip or anything else, do you listen to music? I don't listen to any music because I just can't because it influences me too much. Uh, I, I used to write back when I was first becoming a writer and I was trying, I was trying to make like superhero comics. I'd put on like uh, Hearts of Courage or 
or like badass classical music, the sort of thing you see in every fight scene in, in like an old Spartan movie. And everyone would talk like they were just from Gladiator, <laughs> semi-English, semi-American, awkward. Every line was trying to sound grandiose. So since then, I've just listened to silence um, because I overanalyze stuff and noise makes it hard. For some reason, though, I can listen to Steppenwolf when I'm writing Anna's dialogue. Um, but huh. that's about it. I don't know why. I actually yeah. can. Yeah, I think Klaus is a lot more musical. I, I, I do. I do. If I do music when I'm drawing, if I am going to listen to music, it'll be something that's like relative to the series itself. So if the series has a punk rock edge, it would be punk rock. If it had, like for this for Void Trip, I've been listening to a lot of like psychedelic rock from the '70s. Right. So this weird uh, like Dusty Rhodes vibe that I never really looked into before, and I'm finding all these bands I had no idea about. But mostly, actually, what I do creatively, and I don't know why I do this, it just works for me is I listen to a lot of podcasts, and specifically I'll listen to just the, the craziest, looniest conspiracy theories I can find that people talk about, and I, t- I turn off the part of my brain that has any logic at all, and I just listen to it like it's a sci-fi story that I'm living in, and I just listen to these people say the craziest theories, and then when I'm done, I you know turn it off. The only downside of that is sometimes like when you have, you have like, these memories in your head and you forget how bad the source is that you got it from. You're like, Oh shit, wait, that was a stupid guy on that. (laughs) (laughs) There's a danger to it. What's the, what's the craziest theory that you have heard in this journey of yours? Well, it's interesting because they, I don't think they really, maybe they do. They all feed into each other and they all try to integrate everyone else's theories into a grand theory. And somehow if you it's make a shared it, universe. Yeah, they have to like, it is, it's like fanboy fiction within the, you know, the, the, the latest theory is something to do, something to do with like reptiles running the world that want to make robots to control humans and like, uh, uh, but they're actually time traveling demons. It, it gets so elaborate. It's amazing. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, Bathomat is responsible for uh, bringing the reptilians here who are building robots to enslave us, obviously. <laughs> oh, no. So Baphomet's actually a god from the... Uh, uh, I think the Templars, they, they had his head and he was leading them across Europe. <laughs> the first international grand bank or something. Yeah. He's responsible for the cobalt that's running the world right now. With that, what do you know about Planet X and how it intersects with the Large Hadron Collider. See, that's the lamest. No, no, the good, the, the Hadron Collider thing that I love is the idea that we're trying to build a time portal or right. a dimensional portal, right? And they actually, there's this like really grainy video you can find where people thought they were doing like a ceremony to Shiva to open the portal outside of the Hadron Collider. It's fun stuff. You can't write this stuff. It's like... I ran the math. It checks out. Yeah. Uh, so while we're uh, on the subject of, of the art, loosely, I guess, um, I, I did want to ask you a, a question about some of the uh, the alien life that we see in the book, Plaid. Um, so a lot of it seems to be based on uh, on animals that we see here on, here on Earth. So and uh, one of the things you said in that image uh, plus interview that I referenced earlier was that like one of your main goals was to uh, try to make all the species seem distinct, but still like cohesive. So, how did you de- develop that look? Like, how did you desi- decide which uh, animals you were going to include? Like, were there any designs that you, you know, got, f- like, along with and decided, like, didn't, you know, deserve to make the cut for some reason? What I did was I, I had a little space fruit and then uh, started sketching 
I basically would start telling, telling stories to myself as I was drawing each character. And the stories became more and more elaborate in my head to the point where I was trying to see how much of these different races I could hold in my head. Um, and so they each have this, like, backstory that exists only in my mind and might not ever be explored in the story itself. But I, I was, I said this in a few interviews, like, if you give it intention, I think it gives it a certain power and force that people can recognize. So, example, as you can see, a foreign language, it has all this intention from humans built into it that if you're not in on the secret, you don't know what it's saying, but you can see there's an intention and that it's uh, directed in some way. So I thought that was really important for it to have uh, each one of these characters to have a direction and a backstory uh, that's in this parallel universe that's just in my head. Um, and I think that helped give it sort of a, a real life to the scenes because then it's not just a, a bar with background characters. It's a bar that has these living worlds inside of it. Honestly, I don't, I don't always pay a ton of attention to the background characters because uh, they can be very generic, especially when you're dealing with aliens. Like There are a lot of very sort of baseline, this is what an alien looks like, things that you see in these kind of books. Um, for me, this kind of felt... This felt different, uh, and I'm, I'm especially reminded of the uh, the scene where they where they go and try to get their car fixed, right? And they meet with um, I forget the character's name at the moment, but he there was something about the way that he looked that just really struck me. And I actually went back and looked at his face again because there's this one uh, close up on the character's face, and I was like, wow, that's that's really interesting. Like he just had a look about him that I don't know, it struck me. Hitch is a fun character because uh, Ryan and I talked about his art before I drew him. Basically, back into the void. I could try and explain what he was getting at. Um, yeah, so like uh, the, the guy to talk about the sort of uh, Hitch, the sort of Cthulhu-esque octopus-headed dude. I said to class, I was like, okay, we want to look like a used car salesman Cthulhu god. So he gets <laughs> like this sort of like fat dude in a big, big uh, sort of brown suit with a little hat. Um, and the reason what Carl's getting into there was the, on the visual side, his story arc, he goes from being, um, without spoiling it too much, he goes from being like this sort of lackey to the bad guy to being this like enlightened hippie later on in the story. So at the start, he's got these sort of face tentacles all over the place, but towards the end, they become this like serene beard of wisdom. So <laughs> one thing that Klaus is especially good at is sort of looking at the narrative of the story as a whole and then making sure the visuals for characters as they progress along it are, um, are relevant to it. Like Anna, in every single issue, Anna and Gabe, their outfits change, but they're part of their evolving psyches as the stories move forwards. And the AI character that you see at the end of issue one, spoilers, sorry, he can change what he looks like. So, you know, in situations where he has to fight, he's like a hologram, essentially. So if he's in a situation where it's a fight, he might turn into a Roman centurion. Or if he's trying to explain something to someone, he might turn into a scientist. Um, mm. So there's like not lots of... And like one thing that Klaus didn't mention that... Um, another thing that he does that I really like, enjoy working with him on is that when I'm putting together a script, it's super bare bones usually. Like I won't, I won't say necessarily about what's in the background or, or anything like that. I mean, we'll, t- we'll talk it out, but I won't usually put it in the script because, as I said, you know, comics are very economical. You've only got a certain number of panels per page or pages per issue to con- convey a sense of world and setting. So one thing class is really dope at is world building through background detail. And he does that throughout the entire series. And I think we've got some reoccurring characters in the background that just show up and are never mentioned, but they like they go to the different locations as well. So it creates this idea that there's like multiple people on this journey, not just our heroes. Um, but yeah, so class is good. It's the short. 
question for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I actually uh, had another question for you, Ryan. One of the things that really stood out to me about uh, the writing of the book was I think it has a really excellent sense of humor. Um, I think Anna and Gabe have like really great chemistry and play off one another really well. Um, like as a, as a comedy duo, you know, with uh, Gabe kind of playing as a straight man to some of Anna's antics. Um, so I, you know, I'm already sold on the premise of like, you know, punk rock vagabonds on a psychedelic road trip through space. But I think like the, one of the things that like really, uh, gave me a sense of like what sets the book apart was when you get into that first psychedelic trip for Hitch. Um, and, and like it gave me like a very like, I mean, the, the this issue in general gave me like a very fear and loathing uh, vibe, which I saw you listed as one of the. Yeah. So I, I wanted to like ask, could you speak a little bit to the book's influences? Like what what were some of the things that influenced the story that you're trying to tell here? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, Hunter Thompson was a huge influence, especially um, in Fear and Loathing and also in his wider philosophies to his life, which I won't get into because that will spoil the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, I've loved Fear and Loathing. I reread it a few times when, um, when I was putting this together and sorry, when we were putting this together, I should say. And one thing I noticed was he had all these crazy antics that, um, Hunter S. Thompson and his lawyer were getting up to. But you had the, the sort of, they're very dark, intelligent, biting humor in the narration as well. And the two of them together made it palatable. If you just had this book full of people doing crazy antics, no one would care. It would seem like the writer was in love with his own charisma and it wasn't worth, it wouldn't be worth reading. You'd just find it annoying, right? Um, so one thing with Void Trip, because I'm not using any narration in it, I couldn't just have these characters be crazy all the time because people could just be like, oh, this, this writer thinks he's hilarious. Well, he's not. These characters just irritate me. So we had to have sort of, other characters to counterbalance them. So that's why um, the bad guy, Great White, he, she, well, it's, it's gender neutral, would be, well, it's, it's, I don't know, it looks like a dude, but it, it has a sort of um, like an Old Testament villain way of speaking, like full on fire and brimstone, Cormac McCarthy style. So I was really influenced by No Country for Old Men, Blood Meridian, and the sort of the, the villains from that, Anton Chigurh, and, and I think it's the Duke, not the Duke. Anyway, yeah, okay, so essentially these sort of like, otherworldly cowboys who are just complete badasses and forces of nature talking as if they existed in the book of Job. Like that, we, that would contrast heavily with the, the style of dialogue that Anna and Gabe have because there's a lot of comics out there right now which have what some people might call millennial voice where a lot of the characters sound like Joss Whedon characters and that's cool, you know, there's a market for that. People enjoy that sort of stuff. I enjoy that sort of stuff but I didn't want this book to sound like that so I wanted to have characters that showed that no Anna and Gabe aren't talking like they're not ending every sentence with man or dude because that's all I could write they're talking that way specifically because they're influenced by Hunter Thompson Jack Kerouac or the 1960s countercultural people um, so yeah so that, that would be the sort of direct influence for the characters would be Quiet McCarthy's stuff for the villains Hunter Thompson although he's he's a bit too late to call a beat writer but you know Hunter Thompson and the beats influencing Anna and Gabe and the overall story is very much influenced by like pessimistic writers like Bukowski or Thomas Ligotti. Just the idea that at the core of existence, there's nothing but suffering. How do we respond to that is kind of the overall story of Void Trip as well. Because it ties in with the idea that, you know, in, in life, we don't have many freedoms because the universe conspires to stop us. Life is suffering. Everything we care about will eventually fade away and die, including us. How do we respond to this? And I don't, I don't really say to the reader how we should respond. I'm not sure how Anna and Gabe do. But I don't say to the reader how they should because there's nothing worse than a preachy comic. Um, 
<laughs> and, and yeah, again, with comics giving so much to the reader, I think it's, I can put it this way, the stuff that I really like to read, stuff by, like Cormac McCarthy, Herman Melville, Hunter Thompson, all the people I just mentioned, Bukowski, is that they just point at existence. They point at a certain, like, at what is. They don't try and draw a value from it. They don't try and attach a moral to it. They just say what it is, and then they leave you to decide the rest. Um, and that's the stuff that impacts me the hardest. And when I'm writing, I would like to think my stuff can impact others too. Um, primarily Klaus, because then he'll draw it well. <laughs> well, he'll draw it well anyway, but you know, he'll, he'll be sort of engaged with the narrative if, he's, if he cares about the, the story. So I've got to make sure he's my first reader, right? He's my first reader and kind of my editor as well. So I've got to make sure he's happy with it. But yeah, those would be the chief influences. And then on a more sort of stylistic level, like countercultural films like Easy Rider or, or Thelma and Louise, you know, two people on the road out against the world, how they respond to life, how life responds to them. Those would be the, the big influences. But yeah, I think overall, the one thing that influenced me the most would be probably Bukowski. Uh, I think that's why Gabe looks a little bit like him as well, because uh, mm. a bit of a shout out to him, you know? Oh, I actually wanted to speak to something that, that you just said as well. Um, in that, that same uh, Image Plus interview that I've referenced a few times here, um, one of the things that you, you touched on about, uh, you know, fruit, which is the alien drug, which seems to be a, a pretty major driving force in the story for both better and worse. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Anna and Gabe's relationship to drugs? And like, you know, you said you didn't want to like, make a point about how you feel about drugs, right? That like they can be a path to enlightenment or a, um, I think Klaus said like a trap door to, uh, you know, despair or something like that. Uh, so like, can you tell us a bit about how you see them? Like, are, do you see them as like, you know, kind of free drug loving hippies or are they like more like vagabond addicts? I'd say they are more on the hippie side of things. Cause and the reason we, okay, well, the real reason we went with fruit is because we wanted to try and do an all ages drug book. And the idea was if we just said that everyone was high off sugar, then it would be okay to sell to kids. That obviously wasn't true. But by the, that point, by the, that, blah, by the time we got to that point in the creation of the, the story, we was already sold on the idea of like fruit that you can eat to come alive, but to get high. And then when you're high, they grow these like Disney arms of little white gloves and can talk and tell you not to eat them and stuff. The re- one of the reasons we kept it as it, as fruit rather than drugs is because drugs has a massive negative connotation and we didn't want to get into the genuinely very real problems associated with it. We just wanted to talk about um, how people can use it for... I mean, drugs is like, it's like anything in life. You know, it's like... Uh, like drugs is like drinking or like sex or like whatever. Like You can use it to damage your life or you can use it to enrich your life. And I think we wanted to tell a story with two people who were exploring life and they, and this was part of it. Um, I mean, I don't actually do drugs, but I do find this story, um, but they, they were right for this story and it allowed to us to unpack certain things later on as well. Like it, it started out as, um, this was purely organically as well. This wasn't in any of the plotting. It started out as like this sort of like an accent, like a thing that, oh, oh, it's a cool addition to the story. But as the story progresses, it becomes more and more relevant to the overall narrative. Like by the end of the book, um, it's sort of supremely linked with the main character, whoever it is by that point, coming to like coming to terms with what existence means for them, and like not not in a like a hippie I can see the truth of reality I've got high kind of way because that's cliched and boring, but more in a case of like how fruit allows them to connect with the truth and how it doesn't allow others to and how it how it affects movement because the idea is that essentially. Um, no, I've almost followed the entire series. I'm going to stop there. 
<laughs> okay, that actually kind of takes me into my last question. So if you can answer this as spoiler-free as possible, that's cool. If you feel like you've already done this well, we'll move on. Um, but I guess I wanted to ask, like, y- you've made it very clear that you don't really want to tell your your reader, like, how to feel about any of the themes that you're discussing. You more just want to raise the conversation or ask the question, I guess. So, so, yeah, so I feel like in comics these days, quite a lot, sort of jump in, like a, lot of, a lot of comics, a lot of comics that you could potentially say are left-leaning are very preachy towards the audience. And they need that because the people that are buying those books really need to hear those stories. But that isn't one I wanted to tell. And I realised that the, the topic matter of this is super close to that. So, um, sure. yeah. And there's, like, there's, like a, there's almost like a mini Civil War in comics right now between the left and the right. It's, it's getting a bit silly. Um, yeah, that's for sure. We talk about that a little too much on this show for my comfort. <laughs> it's a dangerous thing for me as someone you know, trying to carve out a career to even comment on, you know? But it's... it's, it's um, yeah, for this story, I didn't want to really focus on saying this is a left-wing, this is a right-wing story, this is a religious story, this is an irreligious story. I just wanted to talk about the nature of human existence. Uh, and Klaus did as well, you know, this is something he's really into. Talk about the nature of human existence and things that affect all of us. You know, this existential dread that we've all got because we're all going to die. We're all going to lose loved ones. We're all not going to live the life exactly the way we want. That's That was the story I, I, we wanted to tell with this Um Sort of on a grander scale because I think the, the thing is like if you do anything a little bit too current and you talk a little bit too much about anything that's like super problematic right now or, or rightly or wrongly you you, you date the work uh, and I didn't want to do that because I'd like to think that this story will, will stand the test of time um, and in a lot of ways it's me come to terms with a lot of my own personal stuff too so it's not it's not as wide-reaching as I perhaps might no it is bollocks yeah it is wide-reaching I think it's very possible for personal projects like what this sounds like to also be wide reaching because the experiences and the struggles that you have are shared by you know they're universal so anyone can pick this up and see themselves in either Anna or Gabe or the struggle that they're going through or whatever there's so much I mean just in the first issue right um that I was able to recognize and say I get this you know um and and it doesn't matter who you are or your political beliefs or whatever, there's something here that you're going to latch on to and say, okay, I'm here for this ride because this matters to me in my life. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, not to be relatable. I mean, the, the goal wasn't to be relatable. The goal was to be honest. Like I was literally wanted to be, okay, this is my honest experience of things. This is how I see things. This is how, this is what I consider to be the truth of existence in a way. What do you think? Like, um, if people relate to it, great. If not, then, well, you know, that's, that wasn't the goal. But I'm really glad to hear you did that because that means doing something right, if only by accident. <laughs> I, I mean, I would say, Ryan, I think you're doing a lot here, right here. Um, I think especially, like, one of the things that you touched on, um, you know, in that Image Plus interview is that, you know, like, you're obviously, I, I would hope that our listeners can tell by your accent, you're not American, but you wrote these characters Wait, as... what? <laughs> Yeah, it's a Texas accent, man. Um, but, uh, you know, you said that that you wanted to kind of um, take little bits from different, you know, periods of, like, popular American culture and kind of distill it into these two characters. And, like, I can say as, as an American, like, I feel that. And, you know, like, obviously that's something that, um, you know, isn't personal to you, but you're finding a way to write it in a way that does speak to people that are different from you. So I would say at the very least that's certainly effective in this first issue. Yeah, because I mean, like, England is very much 
almost like the 51st state. We're very Californicated. Our culture is super influenced by you guys. And anything we create is in that shadow. Uh, not that it's like in the shadow of, the, of America, but it, it's influenced by it. So, yeah. But like, Adam and Gabe aren't necessarily American. Uh, I wasn't trying to write American characters. So if there's Britishisms in there, then, you know, that's, that's fine with me. But, um, yeah, I, I sort of I said, I, went, I got a little bit too hyper when I was doing that image plus interview. I think I put, um, I wanted to look at the underbelly of America and stick a knife in it. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing, right? Every American retailer is not going to stock your book now. You idiot. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I just, I've always been fascinated by the fact that there's like this dual identity people have in England of being slight, we're all slightly American just because of how much your country influences ours. And I, this was probably partially me coming to terms with that. So I mean, if you look at what I'm trying to do in my, my sort of career and what I'm doing is sort of moving into the American comics market despite living in a tiny country miles away from me. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's I never thought I wrote for therapy, but the, the more we talk, the more it seems like I do. I, mean, I used to pride myself and be like, no, people that write for therapy are amateurs, real writers write for the sake of writing, but clearly I'm just, I'm the same as everyone else. Next thing you know, you'll have a Big Mac in your hand soon. <laughs> um, earlier you mentioned how when you uh, write, oftentimes you write for your artist, in this case, Plaid, uh, because in a way he's like your editor. Um, this is not the first time you two have worked together, obviously. Before that, you worked on Trenco. Uh, what is your collaborative process like when you work with one another? Uh, typically, how it works is I'll um, come up with a very, very early days concept and suggest it to him because we're always back, sort of throwing ideas at each other back and forth. And he'll, if it's one that he likes, I'll go away and sort of manipulate it a bit more, get it, make it a bit more solid. And then we'll usually Skype and he'll have a bunch of ideas on what we can do. I'll have a bunch of ideas and we'll sort of play around with it, get it to get it to something solid, you know, like an actual story, actual characters with motivations, all that sort of thing. Then I'll go away, plot out the whole thing. So with, with Creator Road, I like to plot it all out in advance. Then I'll show that to Klaus. Again, we'll sit down and go through it. Uh, he'll, he'll start saying uh, what, he, what he likes, but he doesn't. Um, as for example, in Voyager 1, the whole scene with them stealing gas, that was all his idea. So he was he originally started with them just being stopped by the cops. He's like, nah, man, they need, they're hippies on the road. You need to have them stealing fuel from a big... I was like, oh, cool, all over. <laughs> um, and then from there, once we've sort of got, got the plotting in a place we really like, I'll go away and do the writing, then pass scripts over to him. And then he doesn't usually give me much feedback on the scripts. He'll usually just go away and draw it, and then we'll take a look at the art. And then, then like, we'll switch roles. Like, I'll become the editor at the end. I'll be giving him feedback on art and stuff. Uh, not that he needs it, but more that just like that's collaboration between us. You know, it's, it's he could he could very easily just draw it and the comic would be fine. But we want it to be both of us, so he he, he has given feedback on the writing, but it, it's mainly he gives feedback in the early stages to be create the concept together. You know, we're collaborators. Um, he even came up with a name for this as well. I remember when we sat down because <laughs> originally it was called Space Hobos, but we can't have hobos in the name. People just. Like it's just, I don't know, it, it seemed too much like the Dharma bombs. It was too much of a, an obvious nod to Jack Kerouac. So we thought, okay, well, let's come up with something else. So like, I'm like, you know, me, put on my writer's hat, came with a bunch of names, sat down with him on Skype. I was like, okay, Klaus, what have you got? He's like, void trip. And then he explained all the different ways the, the names worked. And I was like, okay, that's cool. He's like, Ryan, what have you got? And I was like, it doesn't matter. I looked at him on a piece of paper and it was like, it was like space trip journey across the stuff. I was like, then mine was so shit and his was so good. I was, I was like such a crisis. Like, but I'm meant to be the writer. But no, it was, um, it was great. Um, it's definitely a collaboration and 
yeah, I mean, Turnco was very much the same. I came, I came, actually, Turnco was, was a little bit more, yeah, Turnco was more, I came up with the idea, I pitched to him, he came up with the visuals, and then I wrote the script. But Void Trip, yeah, by that by the time we started doing Void Trip, we'd already done Turnco. So then we were a lot more collaborative in the early days, I think that'd be safe to say. He's not here, he can't argue. Yeah, that's what, that's what the case was. No, it, sound, it sounds like a really fruitful relationship, and based off the interact, it seems that way. I have one more question for you, though. This is a real heady one, so really, you got to really think about it, I think. Now, if you were to ever become a space hobo, what would you pack in your space spindle? Asking the big <laughs> questions. It's a finite space, so keep that in mind. And I can't put, like, a bag of holding in there or anything. Like, I can't wish for more wish. No, 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 it's not, uh, it's not an infinite bindle. Like, yeah, an infinite bindle. I don't know what I'd put in there. I've got no idea. Um, what could I not live without? Man, what do I live for? Come on, Ryan. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I put in the bindle. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Uh, yeah, I'd probably put in, like, Moby Dick or... Or like one, because you can only fit like one book in there. Especially about books like Moby Dick. Maybe the Bible, actually. I mean, I'm not religious at all, but maybe because that is like so much of Western literature is influenced by that. Like that could be the one book that I could read to remind me of everything else. Like the, the atheist space hobo that carries the Bible around. There you go. So that's what we're expecting in issue three, right? Yeah, that's, the, that's the sequel. It's just like, I just give up on all this metaphor and just make it all about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so, is there anything you can tease about the future of Void Trip? Yeah, um, it's drawing you in with laughter and the promise promises of a light-hearted space romp. But as the issues progress, it becomes more and more existential and a little bit more pessimistic uh, in terms of um, what it means to live in our world. But it's still funny. Um, some of the art that Cast has done. Is- like, even thinking about it now, I still burst out laughing. Well, I'm not bursting out laughing, but you know, it still makes me smile because I don't know. It's weirdly narcissistic. If you can write a script and put in a, a joke or a scene that you think is funny, and then when an artist does it and it is really funny with how they've portrayed it, it's like you almost don't own the joke anymore, and you can laugh at something that was yours but now isn't. <laughs> but it feels narcissistic. But yeah, it is. It, it is. But it, make, it really makes you realise that the collaboration there. It's not. It's not all you. Oh, but yeah, um, future stuff, Void Trip. Uh, what can I spoil? I can't, I can't. I think the first issue kind of sets the scene and then everything else um, goes on. What, what I will say is that um, they're journeying towards the planet Euphoria because they want to find the promised land because they believe that that will, you know, answer all their problems, all this ex- existential uncertainty they've got. But, you know, by the time they get there, assuming they get there, it might not be as big of a deal to them. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. I like it. Uh, so again, you know, we all we all read it. We all really liked it. I know I'm gonna strap in for this trip because uh, I'm gonna read all, all this. Um, and uh, for me, I can say that having not read something of yours before, you definitely made a fan out of me. Um, so I look forward to not only what happens with Void Trip, but everything that you do after this. Yeah, I, I will say, Ryan, I, I wanted to just pay you a compliment because um, I, I'm in the same boat as Sean. My um, point of entry here was, you know, I've been following Clad's uh, Clad Plaid's art, <laughs> Plaid's art for a little while now, and um, I've been seeing him tease this book for like it feels like for over a year at this point. Um, but like this, I this was one of the best comics I read all year. I I'm so blown away by this. I can't wait to read the rest of it. 
That's a thank you. Can I quote you on that? Yeah, please. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send that to the image publicist. <laughs> so we're going to continue on with the rest of the show. Ryan, hopefully you're going to hang out with us for the rest of this. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So um, we're going we're gonna to move on and we're going to do what we do whenever we have a guest on the show. We're going to play Apples and Origins. This is a game. This is the Comics Pal special, if you will. And Pete is going to explain how the game is played. So take it away, Pete. All right. So um, what we do here on Apples and Origins is we put uh, one minute on the clock and we kind of just go around the circle of, uh, of guests here on the show. And each of us are going to um, pile on one aspect of either like a character or a, a comic. And we kind of just develop an idea, you know, like an elevator pitch for a comic um, in that one minute. And then the uh, second part of it is every one of us has to come up with a name for it, and then we all have to vote to see who's the winner of the round, and you're not allowed to vote for your own name. So, We've already established I'm bad at naming things. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's why this game is so much fun. <laughs> all right, so um, I'm going to pull up the timer real quick. Uh, oh, yeah, usually we let the guests pick the first thing. So, Ryan, why don't you like pick our first detail, and we'll build from there. Okay, so the first thing can be... Uh, the American West, but the old Western. Okay, cool. So it's a Western. Um, yeah, so we'll go Marco, Phil, Sean, me, Ryan, in, in that order. Ready? Three, two, one. It's a milk carton cowboy. It rains donuts. Uh, the protagonist of this series is black. <laughs> uh, his horse is a loaf of bread. What? He's got he's got a dog, but it acts like it doesn't know him anytime they're in public. <laughs> uh, they uh, they are based out of a saloon. The grass is made of grass fed beef. <laughs> uh, this this story actually takes place on a on a space on a on a colony in space. Okay, the colony was established as an effort to terraform a planet, but we just made sentient food that's in an old western town. His main concern as the story goes on, his main character arc, is trying to figure out why he can't separate his normal emails from his spam emails. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big problem. Alright, so that's the end of the round. Let's recap. So we've got a western story told on a planet that was a failed human colony where there's mutant breakfast foods. The main character is a black milk carton cowboy. He's got a dog who doesn't acknowledge him in public, and he rides a horse that's made of a loaf of bread. It rains donuts, and the grass is made of beef. Yeah, it rains donuts, and the grass is made of beef. And his primary character arc is that he doesn't know how to separate his regular emails from his spam emails. (laughs) All right. Oh, boy. This is a tough one. So let's take a minute. Everybody try to come up with a name for this. All right, I got one. This book is called, quote, Some People Call Me Space Cowboy. <laughs> pretty good. Man, I, I literally keep coming back to the same terrible pun, and I'm I just, this is all I got. Spam wars. Okay, mine's going to be to beef or not to beef, because there's like lots of meats. <laughs> <laughs> so they could have the beef grass, they could have the loaf of bread horse, they could have the donuts, so they've got lots of. Culinary options. <laughs> I like that. High noon on cowboy server. <laughs> High noon on cowboy server. Control alt to eat. Control alt to eat. 
Oh, <laughs> that's my new one. <laughs> I'm gonna go with this. This is terrible. This is actually derivative. Actually, I'll get in trouble for this. It's it's going to be called Will Smith's Wild Wild West. Yeah, right. You can't vote for yourself. Well, yeah, we'll recap our options real quick. So everybody just list yours and then we'll go. Ryan, would you start? Mine was to beef or not to beef. <laughs> Mine was uh, High Noon on Cowboy Server. <laughs> uh, mine was Will Smith's Wild Wild West. Some people call me Space Cowboy. And mine was Control-Alt-to-Eat. <laughs> uh, I vote Pete. I'm, a, I'm, I'm giving gonna, my vote to Ryan. I'm also going to vote Ryan. I'm going to vote Control-Alt-to-Eat. Uh, I'm voting Pete. So I won? Woo! He wins. <laughs> All right. This is where I lose it namely again. <laughs> <laughs> is this the first time we've played this where the guest didn't win? Why is the worst writer we've ever had on the show? Cheers, <laughs> man. I appreciate that. Oh my god, Sean, you monster. We've had guests on that have lost before. Chris Masari lost. Yeah. Only one, right. Chris Masari was the only one, so now we can add Ryan <laughs> to that very exclusive club. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, we can we can have you back, and you and Chris can actually compete to see who comes up with the worst name. <laughs> the loser's bracket? <laughs> the loser's bracket. <laughs> This, this is what I get for earlier when you guys give me compliments, me being like, oh, can I, can I use that? <laughs> <laughs> we gotta keep you honest, Ryan. Oh my god, you guys are treating me like the cruise boat's Trenzo. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh... <laughs> we just did a heel face swap here. Uh, Ryan is now the heel on the show. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're going to do some reader mail. Uh, this week, we're hearing from Jimmy again. Our boy, friend. Jimmy P, writing in again. Yes. So, Pete, why don't you read that for us? All right, yeah. So, Jimmy writes in with an email called Gene Gray slash Secret Empire slash Doomsday Clock. So Jimmy writes in and says, Hey pals, I wanted to write in to talk about the latest episode. I'm so excited that Jean Grey as the Phoenix is returning to Marvel. The Phoenix is definitely one of my top five favorite characters from Marvel, and I'm absolutely stoked for the comic coming in December. I haven't read too many comics with Phoenix, but the 90s X-Men cartoon made me love her since I was a kid. The concept of Phoenix is such a beautiful symbol for rebirth. My first tattoo was actually of a Phoenix. Anyway, super excited, and I really hope this is amazing. Personally, I did not like Secret Empire. Most of it was very enjoyable, and it should not have been getting or should not have been getting so much hate just because the writer decided to tell an unconventional story with Captain America. However, a lot of the ending ruined it for me. I don't know if you read the Captain America tie-in that explains how Iron Man and the Avengers get access to a cosmic cube fragment, but I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever read. If that wasn't included, it was a pretty solid story with some really cool concepts. I didn't think I was going to start picking up Doomsday Clock because my pull list is big enough as it is, but I don't see how I could pass up on this. I'm definitely going to try and get a copy of issue 1 at the 1157 release. I have not read a comic by Jeff Johns that I didn't love. This guy even made me like Shazam, which I thought was pretty lame. Oh, when I thought he was pretty lame, excuse me. Uh, I can't wait for this comic, and I can't wait to hear back from the pals, Jimmy. So thanks for writing in, Jimmy. So I'll, I'll tackle this since the brunt of it is sort of aimed in my particular direction. Uh, so thank you for being excited for the return of Jean Grey. I am overjoyed about this. Uh, I, I just can't wait. And so when it's coming out, 
I'll definitely be talking about every single issue, and all the pals are going to have to deal with that. <laughs> uh, and at least I know, Jimmy, that you will be on my side, and you will love uh, this series. I'm a little worried, though, because it's a five-issue mini, and I don't know if that means that she's going to die at the end or what that means. Um, as far as your opinion on Secret Empire, I agree with you. Um, I've, I think it's excellent. I, you know, we, I've talked ad nauseum about you know, my, my opinions on that series. Uh, but I do think that the ending kind of was a little weak and, and they needed more issues because it becomes very deus ex machina towards the end. And it's clear to me that uh, Nick Spencer just ran out of time. And so he packs in a lot of the heroes just kind of getting um, advantages that they didn't, it didn't seem like they were close to having just the issue before. And it all just kind of gets wrapped up in a neat little bow. Um, but I will say that if you did read the Omega issue, that serves as a proper ending to the series, I would say. So check that out if you haven't. And then as far as Doomsday Clock, I mean, you have to read it. I think if you're a comics fan, if you like the big two stuff, uh, it's a must at this point, so I'm right there with you, man. And I will be there at 11:57 buying that book. I don't know if it's just enjoying the big two stuff, even. It's just like if you're an admirer for the comic book medium and the history of it, like this is an event for people that really appreciate like history of comics. I think you know what I mean. I agree with that, but I think there are some people who. There are some people who divorce themselves of everything superhero, of everything big two. And for those people, this is probably not going to be up their alley necessarily. Um, but I mean, it could be, you know, just because Superman is in it doesn't mean that they can't enjoy it. But I just, I'm worried that those people won't even give it a chance. Yeah, mm-hmm. could be good. I think, I think Jeff Jones doing the Doomsday Clock thing. Jeff Johns, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he sort of, um, I don't know if you guys read his old JSA comics, but he's oh, pulling awesome. a lot of... Um, Probably put in a lot of Kingdom Come into that. So yeah. my hope is that with this, he'll do a similar thing, but with Watchmen. So tell it like a real sort of current DC story, but integrating yeah. one of the, arguably one of the greatest comics DC comics has put out into it. So I'm excited about it, man. I'm always optimistic about stuff like this. Hell yeah, you were shining me. Yes. I think... Uh, uh, I, I actually, Go ahead, Pete. I was going to say, I just think what's so cool about it is no matter how good or bad it is, it's going to be a major event. You know, like, to Phil's point, in in comics history. Like, good or bad, this will be remembered as, like, one of the coolest stories ever or, like, one of the biggest flops ever. So it's, like, it's a thing that's just exciting to, like, see happening, you know? Ryan, is J- JSA uh, your favorite Jeff Johns book? Uh, yeah, I'd say, well, either that or some of his run on The Flash. Um, but that's just because I really like the rogues. I mean, I really, I really dig, like, the sort of D-list, uh, I mean, the, the, folk, the rogues aren't D-list anymore, but back then they were like D-list uh, villains. And the cool thing about the JSA was that they're all D-list heroes. So it was, I think it's because like, it's almost like no one has plot armor. Uh, and I kind of like that. Mm. Right. Yeah. Plus it's what, it what Jeff Jones cut his teeth on. So I quite dig that stuff. Uh, so let's do, let's do some pals pulls real quick. Uh, so this week, uh, Marco... Shouted out the Flintstones Volume 2. Do you want to speak on that real fast? Uh, yeah, the Flintstones Volume 1. That's uh, some of the Hanna-Barbera stuff that's been coming out. It's It was phenomenal, the first volume. Um, uh, Pete, yeah, uh, yeah, you read it, right? Yeah, yeah I love the first volume. I, I only read the first six issues, so um, now that the second trade's out, I'm going to go uh, hunt that down. Yeah, same. So it's coming out next week, and uh, or this Wednesday, and I'm super pumped for it. And then 
uh, Marco and Pete both picked Paper Girls number 16. Yeah, I haven't um, – this is another thing where I read the the first two volumes or the first two arcs, I guess, and uh, I haven't been caught up on the, the most recent one. But um, I, I'm a huge Brian K. Vaughn fan and Paper Girls has been a lot of fun. Um, I think I said when it <clears throat> first came out, Marco and I were gushing about it quite a bit. And I was like, it's the longest the book has ever strung me along without yeah. like really telling me what's happening or I'm still just like, yeah, but I'm in. Like, I don't yeah. know quite why, but for whatever reason, it's just – really scratching a very particular itch for me whenever I do read it. So I'm kind of okay with it. And it seems like it, we're, we're going to get the amount of time to actually get these answers eventually. So as long as they're ultimately satisfying, you know, I think uh, that'll be fine. Yeah. I always describe it as uh, uh, Brian K. Vaughn's like his experiment to see how long he can string you like a reader along before actually giving you something. Pete also uh, chose Walking Dead 172. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, what, yeah, what can I say about The Walking Dead at this point, right? Uh, Phil chose the Thor by Walt Simonson Omnibus. Yeah, this is a reprinting. Um, it makes sense that they're reprinting this now with the new movie coming out. This is the quintessential run. Uh, we just did a, uh, a book club on Thor, not Walter Simonson's, but uh, if you're a Thor fan, this is like the run to read. That's, that's not out yet, but... Uh, It'll be out it, eventually. It'll, it'll be out eventually. Yeah, it's coming well, out next month, so teases. Uh, <laughs> you also you also chose uh, Supergirl by Peter David. Yeah, um, Peter David did a uh, uh, a run on on Supergirl in the oh, uh, mid nineties, I guess. Uh, and it's good too. I mean, this is when Peter David was at the height of his game. You know, uh, mid nineties, late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, I mean, it's the it's my personal favorite Supergirl run, so that's worth checking out. Cool. Uh, and then last but not least, you also picked up or are planning to pick up Planet Hulk Pros. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know much about it. Uh, also part of the tease, we do Planet Hulk in our book club that comes out uh, in the future. But there, Marvel's producing a, a, a prose edition of Planet Hulk by Greg Pak. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I really like Greg Pak. Uh, he's one of my favorite active writers in the industry. Uh, I'd be curious to see how this reads. Uh, it's always interesting when a writer ta- uh, tackles prose. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by it as well, for sure. Uh, and then for me, Batman number 32. Uh, Batman has been phenomenal. Uh, we're finally going to get the answer as to whether or not Catwoman accepts the proposal from... Uh, Bat- Batman. So I'm excited to see what Tom King is going to do with that. Um, and then Batman White Knight actually drops this week, which is that is going to be amazing. That's by um, Sean Gordon Murphy. Uh, he's just a phenomenal creator, and I, I can't wait to see his take on um, on Batman. Uh, not only as an artist, but uh, writing too. So um I, I can't wait for this book. Uh, this to me, this is a must. This is a must buy. Um, but actually, Ryan. Uh, so we always do. We always do the polls, the pals polls, where we talk about the books that we're looking forward to. What's on your pull list? One thing I'm reading at the moment that I'm liking um, is it's this weird thing. Like whenever someone says, "Oh, what are you into?" It, it's usually the stuff your friends are making. So it feels like a really nepotistic um, response, but. Um, Simon Spurrier and Casper Wingard just brought out a book at Image called Angelic, 
Um, I don't know if you guys have seen him out. It's it's about um, sort of like post apocalyptic world where monkeys are sort of in charge now, but they've got wings. And it's an all ages book, but it's really brutal. Um, but there's a TV show here in the UK called Watership Down, which I keep comparing it to. It was like the sort of the story about all these uh, all animals of fire. They would like these stories of all these animals that are trying to live in a man made world. But then they just get like brutally murdered. As a little kid, I was watching this, and it sort of it was horrifying. And I'm getting those same feelings again reading this because Casper's artwork. It's just these really cute, like bright pink and bright baby blue monkeys that are just having to do like having to fend off like killer attack dolphins that can fly and evil massive <laughs> cats and stuff. It's really bonkers. Um, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and like the wordplay, it's great too because Sai. I, mean, I don't know if you guys are. Yeah, you've probably seen lots of stuff, but he's he's really good at like wordplay, so it's just constant puns all the way through. But it's tied into the fact that these monkeys have got sort of a reflective language based around um, our language. So mm. if they if they say someone's being stupid, they'll say they were sinful, and that would be dead sinful as well. So it's yeah, it's always ridiculously talented writer, and it's it's just fun to see him like collaborate with Casper. He's a really good mate of mine, uh, and the book they're putting out. Other than that, um, I'm reading. Loads of stuff. I'm looking forward to reading Ed Brisson's Old Man Logan because I've just finished all of Jeff Lemire's. Um, I'm just finishing up on all the Old Man Logan stuff now they've actually brought back Old School Wolverine. So, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't pointless. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, X-Men Gold I'm enjoying as well. I'm trying to think of what like, the mainstream comics I'm reading because I'm reading a lot of indie stuff as well because uh, I just thought about last weekend so I've got a pile of like obscure indie comics. I mean, so. yeah, feel free to shout that stuff out too though. Okay, it's got an Assassin's Creed trailer. That's not really obscure and indie. But yeah, uh, Dan Waters, Alex Pacmadal, and Jose Holder, they put that together. And it's um, it's really awesome. I mean, I've been there with those guys from the start. The two, the, the two writers on it, like, when they write studios together called White Noise, and yeah, I've really enjoyed the Assassin's Creed run. Um, I'm not even a huge fan of the game. Well, I've played all the games. I enjoy them, but I'm not like a, an obsessive fan. But that, sure. book, that book has kind of made me one. Uh, what else? I've got The Lizard, which is a book by Martin Flink. Now, this has been a graphic novel I've been trying to get hold of for absolutely ages, cause, but the problem was, you know, he hadn't finished it. Because he's, he's this guy, this, I think he's Scandinavian, where's he from? I'm just going to read the, yeah, Scandinavian artist who's done loads of like short silent comics, and I really, really like silent comics. And this was his big graphic novel, so I finally got hold of it at the weekend. I opened it up and there's dialogue in it. But, you know, it's still, it's still, um, it's still really dope. And, uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, a lot of the stuff I'm reading at the moment and excited about are stuff that my friends are working on, like uh, the Wolfenstein comic from Titan, uh, the mm. Quake comic from Titan. Uh, some of my buddies are, are writing, enjoying those. I'm really enjoying them. Um, since I started working, I do some video game comics for Titan. I'm writing The Evil Within for them at the moment. And I've done a bunch of Warhammer comics for them. And it's sort of, like, led to a resurgence of my video game, like, in a geek self. So now I've, like, full-on got myself a gaming laptop, bought games, a bunch of oh, games man. that I've never got time to play. You know, I went a bit obsessed, went a bit crazy on Steam. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I'm just like, I used to be a massive gamer back in the day and now it's sort of all come back again. But yeah, so the color comics I'm enjoying are stuff that my friends are working on mainly. And, um, and you know, as I'm sure you guys have this as well, you've got this huge to read pile of just graphic novels that you haven't had a chance to read through yet. Ah, Kieran Gillen's Dr. Afro. It's another one I'm looking forward to because yes. it's his, his Vader run. And that yes. was amazing. And like, like, Kieran's a buddy of mine. I said to him, like, look, I'm doing all these sci-fi comics. Can I steal stuff? And he's like, yeah, I can't stop you. <laughs> so like, I'm, I'm reading through and I'm seeing a guy who like is at the top of his game writing-wise. 
like how he does it all. And there's been many times I sort of accosted him like, "Why did you do it like this?" And he's sort of saying, "Well, the reason why a young grasshopper is," and then you know. So it's, it's um, but it is amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, those are mostly the comics I'm reading. I'm also slowly working my way through Berserk, the manga, which has like. 38 volumes oh man oh, nice ryan we gotta we we gotta you just said you were like interested in video games and then you just name dropped two things that uh one of the hosts of our video game show is obsessed with we gotta have you on that show too <laughs> he's he's a he loves berserk and he's the biggest warhammer fan i've ever met in my life i suppose if you must like dark souls as well though because berserk is yep. really influencing yeah okay cool yeah no yeah, seems, yeah I'm, I'm feeling dark souls as well at the moment and then bloodborne is so well. angry though I can't play Bubble Man. The huge spiders in it. I just can't. I can't handle that. And my, a friend of mine was like, no, but you kill them. I was like, it doesn't matter. The fact they're there. Like, it's not, it doesn't help get rid of the fear. It's just... Yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm hearing good things about Bloodborne, man. Um, yeah, it's only so much time in the day. It's the sad right. thing. Like, you think that, you know, when you're writing comics that you can just write in the morning and then the evenings play video games and read. Nah, man, you're writing all the time. Rewriting, emailing nonstop. It's fun. It's great, but... No video games, unfortunately. Unless I'm working on comics based on them, then that's just like, I can say that that's work. It's like, oh, this is research. <laughs> You're trying this really hard bit in the level over and over and over again, and you think to yourself, I could just watch this on YouTube. Like, this, that would be the, <laughs> I don't need to be playing this. It's like, no, I will carry on. I will not be beaten by a game. <laughs> cool. So uh, we're going to we're gonna jump into the news here. Uh, relatively light news week, actually. Um, and we're going to start with The Inhumans. So we on this show have talked about the Inhumans probably ad nauseum. Uh, the actual show finally debuted on ABC this past Friday. And of course, you know, the reactions have not been great. Uh, basically, they echo what people thought about the uh, IMAX debut. Um, but Scott Buck, who's the showrunner for this uh, show, did an interview with Collider. And uh, he was asked a few things that I thought were pretty interesting. Um, so, first of all, he was asked if the show, if there was less freedom working on the show because it was supposed to be a movie. Obviously, Inhumans was originally slated to be a movie, and then things happened as they are wont to happen, and now it's a show. Um, so, he had this to say. No, I think we had complete freedom to approach this show in the way that we wanted to do it. Jeff Loeb already had a good grasp on exactly what this show should be, and we had a great deal of time talking about it so that I could learn exactly what his vision was and follow through on that. So that's interesting because we've talked about this before. The timeline for the Inhumans show was so tight, and... Uh, I mean, look, a lot of the conversation has been negative, and so it's not a total surprise that the language about the show hasn't been so great. Um, and, you know, you can read the, the rest of the interview yourself, but, um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the stuff that he talks about is kind of about the negatives, you know, um, about how there were a lot of challenges making this show and a lot of different... Um, cost issues and things like that that uh, would have been negated if this were just a movie the way it was supposed to be. Uh, but the one other thing that I did want to shout out from this interview was that he mentions that he's got an idea of where this show will go for three seasons. And I want to know from you guys, is there any chance that Inhumans gets three seasons? Yeah, I thought it got cancelled already. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so I read, I read that 
but that hasn't been confirmed anywhere. Uh, that actually ca- that actually came from a, a rumor because of the way they've been p- promoting it, which is basically they're promoting it as the complete series. Watch the complete series on ABC starting, you know, whatever. And so everyone thought, oh, it's just going to be one season, but they've been promoting it that way since its inception. So that's not necessarily true. Hmm, okay. Um, well, it's one of those things where, like, it's they're in such an interesting position because, like, Disney controls the whole pipeline. Like, if they want to make a season two, like, they can. But I don't really see the reason to do that if this one is is getting so, like, universally panned is, like... Is there even going to be an audience for season two if season two is better? You know, it, it seems like it's probably best for them to just cut their losses and move on. Yeah, um, there's there's definitely some there's definitely a lot of logic to that. But that actually takes us into uh, another point that I want to bring up. That's kind of a tie into this, which is that uh, ABC, they're kind of in a mess with their Marvel products because they wanted to actually cancel um, <clears throat> Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D after the most recent season and the mandate came down from Disney that they couldn't do that. Uh, Disney forced them to renew agents of shield when they didn't want to. And as kind of like a, as kind of a backhanded, we'll do this, but you also have to get this uh, ABC put in humans and agents of shield on the Friday slot, which is known as the death slot on television. Right. Especially for a brand new show. Right. Like, oof. So, <laughs> Disney, you're right. Disney could force them to just renew it. But if Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is not doing well, suffering double-digit um, double digit losses in viewership, and then Inhumans doesn't do well, do they really renew both? I guess it depends on what is Disney's long game here. You know, like, why are they so adamant about keeping Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. around, even though it's generally been perceived as not good at worst and okay at best? You know, I don't know anyone out there who's like a diehard Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fan. Um, and, uh, you know, the the best reviews I've seen around it are that it's, oh, yeah, it got better. And it's like, all right. And they're pushing to keep that going. So I feel like there must be some larger MCU plan that has one or both of these properties involved where they don't really care. You know, and I don't know what the logic behind that could possibly be. Um, but... Why would they do it if there wasn't a reason? You know, if it was as simple as the show isn't performing well, it made it four seasons. Great. Let's cut it. You know, it remains to be seen. We'll see how this season of Inhumans plays out, because honestly, I think it all hinges upon that. Uh, So some congratulations are in order. Some big time congratulations are in order. Uh, And actually some people who are in your company, Ryan, because image creators, uh, Rick Remender and... um, uh, Lazarus. Sorry, is it Wes Craig you're talking about? The yes, 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 Wes Craig. Yes. So, image creators, um, Rick Remender and Wes Craig are getting their book, Deadly Class, produced for a show, um, on Sci-Fi, and the Russo brothers are adapting it, which is absolutely what? unbelievable. <laughs> Wait, what? <Unbelievable. laughs> yeah, I didn't hear that part of it. Like. That's so weird. Most sci-fi shows are really, like, low quality. That's... Huh. Okay. Yeah, the, the Russo Brothers seems to be getting involved with a lot of TV stuff. Like, there's a video game that came out uh, a few months ago called Little Nightmares, and they're doing the TV mm-hmm. adaption of that. So. Oh, I didn't hear about that either. That's really cool. 
Yeah, so they're, they're like, I think they're trying to get, because like, you know, the whole like, post-True Detective TV Golden Age thing is now happening. So I think they're trying to like, uh, True Detective Season 1, Golden Age. Sure. So I think, I think that that's where people are sort of getting their jollies now. Now the films have all become formulaic and right. uh, franchise focused. Well, and like they also, I mean, that's their roots, you know, like they uh, they got their start um, on community, you know, like that was where they really like kind of made a name for themselves as people who could really uh, direct pretty high concept episodes of television, you know? Yeah, I, I've been a fan uh, of Deadly Class since issue one. I am a follower of Rick Remender. I worship at his altar, just like Grant Morrison. And uh, so this is huge news for me. I will absolutely be tuned in. Um, I, I can't wait for this. I mean, that sounds fucking awesome. You know, like, yeah, that's tie me up. Uh, no word on exactly when it's going to drop, but they've ordered um, a pilot. And then I guess it's, you know, it's kind of a wait and see from there. And then another huge announcement, again, uh, coming out of the image camp, is that Greg Rucka and Michael Lark, who have been working on Lazarus, which is probably my favorite comic book uh, that's being published right now, that's going to be getting a live-action adaptation on Amazon. Oh, cool. Nice. Uh, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with Lazarus, it's kind of a post-apocalyptic comic book where bankers – and business owners have kind of taken over the world and they've chopped it up and sliced it and sort of se- segregated it. Um, and different families, quote unquote, own certain portions of the world. That and sounds like the real world right now. <laughs> <laughs> it actually does. Um, and if you, if you read the, the back matter of Lazarus comics, Rucka often talks about how there are parallels between our world and the Lazarus world that he didn't even realize. Um, and he often posts those things in the back matter of the book. So, really excited for both of those. And, could be good. Uh, absolutely, could be good. <laughs> um, Amazon actually, they've got the tick too. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they've been really like seeming to be making a conscious effort to expand their original offerings ever since they got like their first real hit with um, what was that that Nazi show, uh, Man in the High Castle, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. The Nazi show. I mean, that's what it's about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you turned me off from watching it. <laughs> the Skybound are doing a lot of stuff with uh, Amazon, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they, yeah. they just made a, a, a new partnership with them, um, like, a couple weeks ago. They signed a first look deal, yeah, uh, about a month or two ago. And I'm really excited to see what comes out of that, too. So Amazon really upping their profile. Lately, yeah, Skybound with too, comic for that book matter. properties, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's let's jump into something a little more meaty. Uh, we talked recently about James Cameron and his criticism of Wonder Woman. Obviously, many people had responses to what he had to say. Um, Patty Jenkins, of course, being one of them, uh, and some of the comments that he had made was. Uh, as much as I applaud Patty directing the film in Hollywood, letting a woman direct a major action franchise, I didn't think there was anything groundbreaking in Wonder Woman. Uh, so he's now responded to the response that he got. Um, he says, in response to his calling Wonder Woman an objectified icon during an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Cameron had this to say. 
Yes, I'll stand on that. I mean, she was Miss Israel and she was wearing a kind of bustier costume that was very form-fitting. She's absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. To me, that's not breaking ground. They had Raquel Welsh doing stuff like that in the 60s. It was all in a context of talking about why Sarah Connor, what Linda created in 1991, was if not ahead of its time, at least a breakthrough in its time. I don't think it was really ahead of its time because we're still not giving women these types of roles. I, I One of the things that rubs me the wrong way about this the most is how like his entire complaint about this in, is framed through him talking about things he did and how they were better. <laughs> uh, it's like very little like, okay, man, like I get it. You're great and everything. But <laughs> but anyway, um, I feel like a lot of those things he's saying are like, oh, she's Miss Israel, so she can't. Like, she's pretty, so she can't be a strong female character or something like that. Like, that seems very reductionary. I think that was, like, uh, Patty Jenkins' response, right? Was that, like, isn't the whole point of, um, you know, feminism being al- allowing women to define themselves however they want, not trying to, you know, be a certain way to reject something, you know? Like, because then you're still acting in response to what is expected of you, right? Yeah, uh, that's essentially what she said and what what everyone's been saying. I mean, um, Gal Gadot came out and spoke about this as well, and she basically echoed Patty's set sentiments on this subject. And it's just like, unfortunately, this is so typical because, yes, James Cameron, Sarah Connor, that's a fantastic character, but that's only one way to write a female character. And removing... Saying that a, a female character cannot be sexy and also everything else is ridiculous, and male characters are allowed the full spectrum of emotion and you know personality in any you know no one no one bats an eyelash when James Bond is sexualized. That's what happens in those movies, and no one cares because that's just what it is. Wonder Woman has sex with. Um, Oh gosh, Steve Trevor, and all of a sudden she's an objectified icon, and you know, oh, she's Miss Israel. It's just ridiculous, you know. I mean, the one thing I didn't like about it was um, one thing I noticed. I think he seems to be wrongly like conflating um, objectification and beauty as someone being beautiful as the right. same thing. Like the the thing with Wonder Woman is she did it wasn't shot with the male gaze. She wasn't shown to... Yes, she was beautiful, but she wasn't objectified because she wasn't treated like an object. Her beauty was just one of many characters she had, characteristics she had. And I think that him saying, she's pretty, therefore she's objectified. Let me describe her outfit in the most lecherous, creepy, old man way possible. <laughs> isn't really like that convincing. Like, And yes, Sarah Connor was a great character, but, you know, he made her what? 30, 40 years ago, make another one, mate. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point, you know? And and I think even so, the, the tenor that he comes at it with is like very much like, oh, well, like that's the right way to do it. And here's why this is the wrong way. And it's like, I think to Sean's point earlier, like I, I think the way that we really move forward with representing women well is to represent all kinds of women, you know? And like, yeah, sure. Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor is, um, one way to portray a strong female character. And I think, um, you know, Wonder Woman's is another. Yeah. I think Wonder Woman's a great film. Um, I remember the, the part where she went over the top. Mm-hmm. Oh, the no man's land thing. Oh, that was so emotional. Oh, that, that was, it was emotional. And I think, 
often the quirks of people that get the film and those that don't, not that it's a hard film to get, but some, like, some guys just like don't get the film, is that that bit which goes over the top, that's the emotional heart of the film. I think Patty Jenkins was saying that she had to really fight to, with the execs to keep that bit in there. Yeah. But it's like, no, the whole point is that she's like casting off all these limitations of society, all the limitations that society's attempted to put on her and just been a pure hero. And that is, um, that is genuinely inspiring. I mean, it was the first superhero film I've seen for a while that was genuinely inspiring. Yeah, I 100% agree. I didn't know that DC or the executives at Warner Brothers fought with Patty Jenkins over the No Man's Land scene. It, you're you're one hundred percent right. She, That's hilarious. Uh, she she did an interview where she said that that was one of the only scenes that she got pushback about. That's fucking she had insane. To explain to them why it was so important. It's a scene of just female empowerment. We don't understand this. No, and it's literally the most powerful moment of the film. Like you know, like that is such the. That's definitely the emotional core in my mind. You know. It's just so powerful. Well, this is funny because it's like it is the best scene in the movie. It is really powerful. It has a it makes a large impact, and it's the scene where Warner Brothers is like, Nah, I don't know. <laughs> There's no lasers in this scene. Can we put a robot in that? No, we can't. Fuck <laughs> can, can we just can we just cut to her yelling, Martha? <laughs> uh, Linda Carter, actually Wonder Woman herself, clapped back hard at uh, James Cameron's oh most recent comments. Yeah. Uh, she she had this to say on Facebook. To James Cameron, stop dissing Wonder Woman. You, you poor soul. Perhaps you do not understand the character. I most certainly do. Like all women, we are more than the sum of our parts. Your thuggish jabs at a brilliant director, Patty Jenkins, are ill-advised. Oh. This movie was spot on. Gal Gadot was great. I know Mr. Cameron because I have embodied this character for more than 40 years. So stop it. Holy shit. <laughs> Damn. That is savage. That's awesome. <laughs> That's the cue for Pete to sing the old 70s Wonder Woman theme. Wonder Woman! <laughs> <laughs> What I love about it, too, is that I, I kind of feel like that's exactly how Wonder Woman would react. She was just very straightforward and harshly be like, no, you're absolutely wrong about that. Uh, you know, I really like James Cameron. I'm a huge fan of the Terminator. Terminator 2 is my favorite movie of all time. But when you come out and you say things like this, more than anything, it just makes you sound out of touch. Um, and not really grasping where the world is at now and the changes and the things that that people are, are trying to do. And it's like, yes, you contributed to this. Uh, but the world has moved beyond what you created in a lot of ways. And now more than ever, it's okay to portray and it needs to start becoming even more okay to portray women as not just badasses. It, it's not just that if you're a, a good female character that you have to be a, a, an emotionless badass or you know, or a femme fatale or whatever. It, it's, it, it runs like a mutt, just like it does for men. That's how it's supposed to be. So we're about to dive into our main topic, but we actually have to say goodbye to Ryan. Uh, Ryan is going to head out, uh, but it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on board. I'm really, really thankful for you doing this with us, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Would love to, dude. It's been a lot of fun, especially talking uh we're talking about, you know, Void Trip and everything, but also chatting wider geek culture with you guys has been quite fun as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so where can people find you? Where can people find out more information about Void Trip and everything that you're up to? 
Uh, the best place would probably be on Twitter. It's uh, at Ryan O'Sullivan, all one word. Um, if people want to email me, they're welcome to. It's ryan.osullivan.uk at gmail.com. And if you want to know more about Void Trip, uh, yeah, probably my Twitter is the best for that as well. Uh, Twitter is pretty much the sort of comic, I don't know, mecca. So <laughs> if you want to find me on there, I'll be tweeting shamelessly, self-promoting. So it'll be on there. Me and Klaus. He's, a, he's at Play Klaus on Twitter as well. So, yeah. Do you want to find out more? That's where I'll be. And we'll include links to all that stuff in the description down below if you guys are watching uh, on YouTube or SoundCloud or whatever. Yeah. And we did lose uh, Mr. Klaus, but uh, it was it was fun having him on while it lasted. And unfortunately, we did lose him to the void. So I'll try uh, and bring him back for the next one. I'll try and <laughs> wrestle him back into existence. And and we'll see you at uh, New York Comic Con, right? I'll see you next week. Yeah. Yeah, great. Got you coming to the signing. It's at five on Thursday at the Image booth. Try so me and, Klaus, me and Klaus will both be there if you're We will be there now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. So thank you for joining us again and take care. Take care, guys. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ryan. Come back anytime. <laughs> will do. Bye. So we did lose Ryan, but the show is not over uh, because we have to talk about DC's new vision for their film world. Do we? Uh, do so, we have to? You know, yes, we do. Because DC's films... Let's be Amazing. honest. They are the best films, especially Suicide Squad. It won an Academy Award, right? That's right. Academy yes. Award winning film. Yeah, listen. How many of your favorite films have won Academy Awards? Okay. Several. <laughs> All right, well, listen. But are they Suicide Squad? No. Well, you don't, what you guys don't realize about Suicide Squad is it swept the Daddy's Little Monster Awards. <laughs> Uh, it won every single one. It won the damaged category <laughs> and you know, the you, rest. You know, Phil, it, don't I get fired up enough when we talk about DC's movies? You <laughs> you like, I like when these stories start, I'm already at like an eight or a nine and you just take me up to like an 11. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's jump into this. So in a revealing interview with Vulture, Jeff Johns and Diane Nelson talk about some of the problems that the DCEU, which I actually learned through this interview, is not the canon title for their film universe. Uh, that is that isn't something that they came up with. Um, actually, it was a random writer on a website that no one has heard of christened it that as kind of like a joke, and everyone kind of ran with it. And that's what it became. But they say in the interview, Jeff and, and Diane say that they, they don't use that term. That's really yeah. funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. Is it is yeah. it DCFU? Guys, come on. We're, prof- we're, we're professionals here. The DC film universe. We're going with that. <laughs> that is well, what we are going with. Yeah. yeah uh, when, when Man of Steel came out, I always call it the DCCU, Cinematic Universe, like the MCU. Uh, but then I saw people on the internet calling it DCEU, and I thought it was dumb. So they talk about the problems that they've experienced and how they're planning to write the ship. So what we're going to talk about through the context of the interview, which was extremely revealing, uh, and I recommend that you read it regardless, um, what we're going to talk about is can these strategies that they're about to employ be effective, or have people already made up their minds about what DC has done on film. So 
in this interview, and I, I do want to shout out the, the writer here. The writer is Abraham Reisman. This, this article is, it goes into everything. It goes into how the DC film universe began, uh, the origins of that. Um, and it kind of touches on each film and how it changed things or what the result of that film was internally. So it's, it's really revealing and great stuff. Uh, but, but we're going to dive into it. So Jeff Johns has had a sort of uphill battle. And so has Diane Nelson, quite frankly, in terms of getting into the positions that they're in to affect change in, in DC. And the article goes into that in depth, but they talk about uh, what the future holds. So this is a quote from Diane Nelson. Our intention, certainly moving forward, is using the continuity to help make sure nothing is diverging in a way that doesn't make sense, but there's no insistence upon an overall storyline or interconnectivity in that universe. And as a follow-up to that, uh, Jeff Johns had this to say. Some of the movies do connect the characters together, like Justice League. But, like with Aquaman, our goal is not to connect Aquaman to every movie. The film is not about another movie. And then Nelson had this to say in the same vein. Moving forward, you'll see the DC movie universe being a universe, but one that comes from the heart of the filmmaker who is creating them. And so the article talks about how these two have sort of chosen to emulate what has worked in the comics. Because, again, it's a winding story, but DC Entertainment... It's not DC Comics anymore. It's DC Entertainment. And that encompasses everything that they do. So Diane Nelson and Jeff Johns have kind of had this vision, more Jeff Johns, had this vision for the comics that is creator first. So they wanted to build a world where it doesn't matter what's happening in Superman if you're writing a Flash comic. Focus on the Flash comic. Tell the best Flash story that you can, the one that speaks to you, and everything will spin out of that in a way that ultimately will make some sense. Um, that's what Rebirth has been. And Rebirth has been wildly successful, I would argue, in large part because of that. And so Jeff Johns and Diane Nelson have emulated that, and they want to do that on screen. So that's why Wonder Woman is a film that, while it is, it definitely does take place in the DC universe, it is in its own sort of sandbox. Uh, that's why Aquaman is going to be in its own world. That's why they're making the Joker film. So let's pause here, and I want you guys to tell me whether or not you think that this is the way forward for DC films. I think it's a good idea. Um, you guys know I'm not the big superhero reader, so um, the for me it always gets muddled when you have crossovers, just because I I, I don't always understand the history of other characters and especially characters I might not be interested in. Like when, for example, um, back in the New 52, uh, Superman appeared in a Bomb Thing issue for no apparent reason. He just kind of comes in, tries to console uh, Swamp Thing on, on something, and like, there's no need for that kind of stuff. I was kind of lost as to why he was there. They were talking about things that I had no understanding of. So for Hi, people- Superman. My grass is ass. Can you help me? <laughs> no. Um, uh, so for um, so I like it when books are are separate. Um, it 
and not always in the same universe. It just makes it easier for someone who's coming into that to, um, to understand. And knowing that there's only been three uh, DCU films so far, um, it's, it's a good way to, to get people like to introduce into the, the universe, especially if they're trying to change sort of the direction that they're trying to go and not make it as grimdark, trying to edit the content in a certain way. It makes them able to manipulate it so that it feels fresh for those people and for people who are coming in as like laps from Batman versus Superman or Man of Steel. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's I think this is a good strategy because I think I think the idea that especially in DC's case, because so many of their movies are bad, I think if you have a universe where every single film is chained together. Um, if you're not watching all of them, you're going to have questions oftentimes. You know, I, I think Marvel has run into that problem at this point where, um, you know, there are definitely like Phil, right, made the case that he believed Spider-Man Homecoming was dragged down because of its connections to the MCU. I don't necessarily agree with that opinion, but he's certainly not alone in that. And I think if you're not someone who watches Every single, like the defenders, right? Like Kale had a bunch of problems where the, the, he, his experience with the defenders, uh, was really heavily impacted by having not watched Luke Cage or Jessica Jones. So I think while there's value to having interconnected storytelling for people who are engaged with it, I think having, um, a universe where you have singular narratives that then cross over with other things where appropriate, I think is, is, probably a better strategy when you're trying to appeal to a more casual audience. Um, and, I, and I think to me, um, just to respond to something that Marco said, I think it all comes down to how a character's used, right? Like I don't think crossovers with other characters that are unrelated are an inherently bad thing. I think they're inherently defined by how they are used. Cause I think like um, you're wrong. Uh, to pull an example from a book that Phil teased that we read earlier, uh, which was like Planet Hulk, right? Was like, there's spoiler alerts for a, you know, uh, what, eight year old book. Um, there's a cameo from Silver Surfer in that book. And it's used really, really well because of the relationship to the main character that exists. And it, it meaningfully advances the story. So I think if you are going to have these characters cross over, do it in that way. And I think if you have films that feel, um, self-contained and, you know, sure, they're in the same universe and maybe there's a, a, a wink and a nod here and there like we got in Wonder Woman, but it stands on its own. I think that's probably a good strategy, especially for them where they're at right now, while they're trying to rebuild, you know? Frankly, I think it has the potential to be assuring news. Um, the worst thing of the MCU is all the interconnected bullshit. It, all, it drags down all their films. Um, the worst movies in the MCU or all the movies that are too reliant on other films bar uh, Civil War, which is the only good one in that context. Um, I mean, having a loose canon has benefited Rebirth and DCU. Having a loose canon has benefited the Fox films. Um, so Wrong! <laughs> <laughs> if if DC can make actual good films that are in line with Wonder Woman as opposed to the other three films that they've released in this modern incarnation of these movies, uh, then, I mean, ideally, 
they'll be on the right track. Because it, honestly, they shouldn't try to replicate the Marvel formula because the Marvel formula is bland, generic, and uninspired. So hopefully they do something that's decent. I think that it's, it's for me, it's really interesting because we complain about interconnectivity, yet interconnectivity is what has driven comics for a long time, at least the big two stuff. And on top of that, um, most of the stuff that we enjoy is serialized. So the serialization of the Marvel films, to me, I don't see a difference between that and a television show in the sense that if you are watching, I don't know, uh, Breaking Bad, if you start in season four, you're going to know nothing about what's going on. And that's the way it works. And everyone inherently knows that. If you watch episode three of Star Wars, you're not going to know what the hell is going on because that movie is the third in a trilogy. And so I've never understood the criticism of Marvel or even DC for, tr- for doing that outside of where, outside of where the film gets bogged down in it. So it doesn't matter if that is what's in the film so much as it matters if the film is good. A bad movie doesn't mean that interconnectivity doesn't work. It just means that the creators failed. And that's a different thing. I think there's a difference here in comics. Real quick, Phil, I do just want to respond to something that Sean said specifically. Um, I, I just think I think what you said about like the Breaking Bad thing. I think this is more akin to like Better Call Saul, though, right? Like you should be able to watch Better Call Saul without watching Breaking Bad and still have that be an enriching experience. And I feel like if the films do rely on other pieces of media, like it, like if you can watch Spider Man Homecoming without watching any of the other movies and be confused about elements of it, that's that's definitely a problem. I, I don't agree because there's like, again, we read comics and in comics, you can't do that. And you've really not ever been able to do that unless you are reading, you know, issue one. There's always context that's going to be missing from a book. Uh, if, if you're reading issue one of Dan Slott's Spider-Man, for example, there's a lot of stuff that's not going to make sense to you if you didn't read the prior run or you don't, you don't, you don't know those things. And that's, that's the way that comic books work. And I guess you could make the argument of it should be more like Better Call Saul, but there's there are things in Better Call Saul that mean more to you if you've watched Breaking Bad. And there are things in Avengers 2 that mean more to you if you've watched Avengers 1. Do you have to watch Avengers 1 in order to watch Avengers 2? I don't necessarily think so, but I think it helps. I think it helps a lot. If you don't watch... Uh, Avengers 1 and 2 and you watch Civil War are you going to be lost? Yes. Is that a bad thing? I don't see why. So when it, with regard to comic books the worst books that the big two typically publish are events which are the most continuity heavy things that they put out that rely on multiple books across the line to basically tell a story the tie-ins if you will and that's the same reason why the Marvel Cinematic Universe is problematic is it's too much shit bogging down a story. It's outside of creator's control when you have to tie in a million loose ends from other things. Whereas with in the DCU, you know, line is that tell your own story. It gives power to the creative, gives power to the artist, to the writer to tell their story without editorial bogging down a book. 
You think about Grant Morrison's Batman, which for the most part, they let him do his thing, but as soon as they dragged in the greater DCU into it, it brought the book down. Because that's what happens when you have producers or you know senior editors or whomever on whatever title or platform that try to tie in something that has nothing to do with the artist's vision to a title. And this is why the Marvel Cinematic Universe falls apart is because you have Ike Perlmutter or whomever who's like, oh, well, you need to include the Infinity Stones in this movie that has nothing to do with the Infinity Stones, and it brings down the movie. We could we could continue on with that. Uh, but I, I do want to push forward with talking about this article because oh. – <laughs> I didn't realize that was a thing. <laughs> My bad. That's okay. Uh, Jeff Johns and Diane Nelson tried to stop Man of Steel from getting the reaction that it ultimately got. So, you guys, don't feel the way you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, follow me here. So, obviously, Man of Steel was not terribly, not terribly well received, uh, and. It tried to ape what what it tried to ape what people think is the reason why the Dark Knight films work so well, uh, which is to make it dark and gritty and all that stuff. Stuff that applies to Batman and works for Batman, but not necessarily every other character. And I think that there's a lot more that works about those movies than just that. That's not. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's what are good. it's what dumb producers try to boil down. People like these movies because they're gritty and dark. And so the article talks about how um, when they were conceiving this movie, they reached out to Christopher Nolan, who was a producer on the film, and he said there are two options to make this movie. You got Darren Aronofsky and you got Scott Snyder. Or Zack Snyder, I'm sorry. Scott Snyder, Superman would be phenomenal. Uh, So so you had Darren Aronofsky and Zack Snyder. They ultimately went with Zack Snyder. We got what we got. Now, Jeff Johns read the scripts initially, and this is a quote directly from the article. Jeff Johns and Diane were reading scripts, and Jeff Johns, to his credit, was concerned that there was not enough lightness or humor given who the character is. And he recalls – oh, oh, sorry – recalls one person with knowledge of the making of Man of Steel. So that's a quote coming from somebody who uh, was involved with the process. Jeff definitely raised that point, but that current administration didn't care that much about what Jeff Johns thought. So, obviously... It's so stupid. And it's like, this isn't like me being a fanboy thing. This is me being a like, you're a fucking idiot as a businessman. Why would you not (laughs) care about the opinion of the people that work in the industry of the fucking thing that you're adapting? Like, listen to the guy's two cents. Jesus fucking Christ. Kevin Smith talked about this all the time when he was working on Superman Lives. They don't care. Typically, these executives don't care about the people who work in the industry because when they gave Kevin Smith the, the, the screenwriting gig, he's like, hey, maybe you should talk to like Dan Jurgens or something over in the actual Superman books because like, they know what they're doing. I, I'm just a fan that made fucking clerks. Yeah. Uh, the, the, article, the article goes on to talk about how push out of the film conversation, Jeff and, and Diane sort of turned to the, to the shows. And that's why the, you know, Berlantiverse or whatever you want to call it with Arrow and, you know, Supergirl and Legends of Tomorrow, all that stuff 
I don't watch that stuff, but I've heard a lot of good things about each show. And part of the reason why is because Jeff Jones kind of said to these people, hey, do what you want to do. I'm going to be here as someone you can bounce ideas off of. I'm going to be here as a guy to help you maybe guide your story in the right direction, but I'm not going to tell you what you have to do. I just want to see what you want to do. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, that's a big reason why those shows have been so successful. So after Batman vs. Superman released and it got the reaction that it did, and then Suicide, Suicide Squad released and got the reaction that it did, uh, things changed in, in the headquarters of uh, WB. Uh, and the article says the following. Um, when BVS flopped critically, there was finally concern about the creative choices that had been made up to that point. Johns and Berg, newly installed, swiftly decided that a core element of their new strategy would be a lightning of the previously sludged dark mood. All of a sudden, <laughs> you saw Johns doing interviews where he'd talk about how the DC mythology is built on hope and optimism. Berg was on the same page. We talk about four things. Heart, heroics, humanity, and humor. So, I'm going to let you guys respond to that because obviously there are thoughts. <laughs> What can I say? I'm disappointed. You're idiots, and your products deserve to fail. Pete's like, in the, like, a, like a spiteful Italian mother. I'm disappointed. <laughs> I'm not even mad anymore. At this point, it's just, what were you, what were you possibly thinking? Pete's going to stress eat at Carabas later. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving me high blood pressure! <laughs> So I, I will say this, Jeff. Jeff knows what he's talking about. I'll say this: Jeff Johns suffered so long to get to be on the top and be like, "I was right." <laughs> <laughs> From a faraway mountain. For, yeah. Well, well, then uh, Wonder Woman was a thing. That's what I'm saying. Right? First thing he touched, absolute the first, absolutely the first success they've had. Period. And. So it was it was Jeff Johns and it was Alan Heinberg who basically wrote the script. Um, and Jeff Johns' influence certainly is a part of why Wonder Woman was so successful. And it's not a surprise when you consider the fact that Wonder Woman was not a film that, at least everything that I've read, that WB thought a ton of. You know, Batman vs. Superman, Crown Jewel – very protected. They didn't want to hear what Jeff had to say. Roman Reigns. <laughs> Whereas Wonder Woman, now Jeff's got a little more stroke. He comes in, they're listening, and we get what we got. AJ Styles. <laughs> uh, but that opens the door to the conversation about Justice League, where we can kind of sit and discuss whether or not they've got something here with this new crew of creators and this new vision. Uh, so Justice League is the most interesting film on DC Slate because Justice League is coming out at a time where it's existed between two distinctly different visions, right? It's existed with different executives being involved in the project, literally different directors being involved in the project, and different mindsets about what the project should be. And so the article has this to say in particular about the involvement of Joss Whedon in the project. Uh, 
There were internal discussions about how to revamp parts of the movie. Johnson Berg molded the idea of having someone other than Snyder write the new scenes for the film. By coincidence, the writer-director of Marvel's The Avengers, Joss Whedon, met with Johnson Berg to discuss creating a movie with them. The pair were game for that. They eventually chose one about Batman, Batman's ally, Batgirl, but later re- realized that they could accomplish another goal. And this following quote is from Jeff Johns. Everyone was excited about Joss being a part of DC, and we thought he'd be great to write the Justice League scenes, the additional photography scenes that we wanted to get. That, I don't know if you guys caught that. That's a huge revelation. Because what he just said is that they already planned for Joss Whedon to come in and write these scenes. Just want to say, it was, I called it. You did. You did. Phil was indicated from like six weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. That's a huge revelation because we've been talking on this show a lot about why Zack Snyder departed the project. And now we know. So that leads to now. And the biggest issue that DC faces, which is image control. It's the fact that people aren't willing to believe that DC knows what they're doing. And so the following is a quote um, from Jeff Johns. When asked if there really were all these kind of problems in the production of all these films, some of the stuff is true. Some of it isn't true. When we talk about things or we're making deals for people to develop scripts or whatever, sometimes things leak. Sometimes things are misreported and it's frustrating because we do want to go out there and talk about what our strategy is and this stuff just muddies the water. There's a lot of internal conversations going about going on about how do we help kind of clean that up a bit. So obviously they're aware of the pressure that they're under. Obviously they're aware that the optics are horrible and they're trying to write the ship. So my question ultimately to bring this back home is do you guys think that it is too late to make change here. Yes and no. Justice League is probably a lost cause, at least part part one, because I think they're doing the Avengers thing where they're going to split it into two parts, right? Where- Can I stop you real quick? All right. Sorry. That's one of the things that the article does discuss, and it's crazy because there has been no mention of Justice League Part 2 ever since uh, the announcement of Zack Snyder leaving the project. They didn't oh, talk about shit. it in San Diego. Like, remember San Diego Comic-Con? They had the huge slate of movies. Justice League Part 2 was not on there. Holy shit. Justice League Part 2 was supposed to come out a year after Part 1. They're not filming for that movie. So, don't know what's going on with that, but continue. Justice League, lost cause. Absolute lost cause. Uh, If they make a good movie out of essentially poop, uh, part of my language, of course, um... Then you know. Then I have complete faith in restored and their executives that they can make Justice League somehow into a decent movie. Outside of Justice League, however, uh, I, I I think their other projects have plenty of potential to be fine. Wonder Woman's indicative of the fact that the right thought process is going into these things. I just think Justice League was like that type. <laughs> Basically, the Justice League movie, Zack Snyder was the 
the uh, boat driver of the Titanic who saw the iceberg and all of a sudden Jeff John's like, hold on, hold on. Whoa! Joss, steer us out of the way! And <laughs> it's probably too late. To answer your question, Sean, no. I don't think it's too late. Um, the only thing people like more than shitting on something is a comeback story. Uh, I think Wonder Woman, like to Phil's point, is indicative of the new regime's, uh, you know, like bar for success, you know? And I think even if Justice League is terrible, uh, if, if they come out with three or four movies after that that are solo movies that are of the same, around the same quality as Wonder Woman, um, with a pretty decent margin of error there, I I don't see why the opinion about their movies wouldn't turn around. You know, I think um, I think it's clear that this is like a soft reboot for this universe, and like they're definitely changing the direction that they're trying to move forward in. And uh, I I think it remains to be seen, right? Like Justice League, I think is almost definitely going to be terrible. I think it depends on what does Aquaman come out and seem like. Do we are we as hot about Aquaman as we were about Wonder Woman? You know, it, can they replicate that success? And if I see that, then I'll have confidence that you know the ship has been righted, and uh, you know we can just ignore those mo- those previous three movies. Well, I'm optimistic because Roman Reigns is playing um, Aquaman. <laughs> but I think I don't know man I think the fact that there's so many other movies around you know like they they mention Aquaman specifically right but then like every other week we're yelling about how or at least I am about how there's still supposed to be a Suicide Squad 2 you know there's still supposed to be this Joker and Harley movie or Sirens of Gotham or this Joker origin that's not connected to the DCEU but is and or not the DCEU, excuse me, whatever they fucking call it. Uh, and that, that's the thing, right? Is like, I, this sounds great, but if Jeff Johns didn't have enough power to save Batman v Superman or Justice League, and he only got to fix Wonder Woman because they didn't care about Wonder Woman, do they trust him now? And now we're actually going to get to see him be in charge and, and do his version of every one of these movies? Because if that's the case, okay, let's wait and see. But if not, then I think the best we can hope for is the few characters that nobody really gives a shit about will have really good movies, and all the big marquee characters that we're supposed to care about are going to have bloated pieces of shit. Um, if, if the idea that they're doing every movie as a standalone kind of thing, uh, to a broader degree, I suppose, then... Movies like the Suicide Squad sequel, or Harley and Joker, or the Swamp Thing movie, we can just all assume they're going to be bad, understandably, but I'm glad Marco wasn't listening to that jab, uh, but... I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> I just no-sold it. Yeah. But movies <laughs> like Flash, uh, Aquaman, Wonder Roman, or whatever, still have the potential to be good. It's more like you have to judge, by the way they're presenting it, you have to judge each film by the creative that is tackling it. Which is kind of how Fox is right now. With, like, Logan, it's like, oh, well, they let the director do what he wanted, and he got a spectacular movie. But 
with Apocalypse and presumably Dark Phoenix or Phoenix Saga, you think like, oh boy, this doesn't sound good. Everybody knows this, but I like interconnectivity. I love events. I love movies that are interrelated. I that all that stuff is 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 for me, and so it's hard for me to. It's hard for me to say, oh well, why would you get rid of that stuff? Because or it's hard for me to say that that stuff should go away because that's what I like. For DC though, it obviously hasn't worked. My argument is it hasn't worked because it hasn't been done well, and even though Phil disagrees and that's fine. Most people like what Marvel is doing. Most people enjoy those films. Most people enjoy overall what they've put out. And I think that there's a reason for that. That doesn't mean that DC has to emulate that. And it doesn't mean that they have to be by the numbers building their entire universe around each successive Justice League movie. But I do think that there are lessons to be learned on DC's part from what from what has made Marvel work. And when you when you track it all down at Marvel, there are plenty of people who care at, about these characters and care about the comic books that they come from. But you got one guy who essentially is the gatekeeper, the guy who keeps it all together, and that's Kevin Feige. And if Jeff Johns is going to be DC's Kevin Feige, then DC is fine. Because he gets it. The way that Kevin Feige gets Marvel, Jeff Johns gets DC. No one gets DC more than Jeff does. So if you let him do what he's going to do, then all of this will work. I believe. Uh, Is it too late for audiences? No. Justice League is going to do bananas. It's going to be money-wise. Come on, right? It, it might um, underperform to expectations like Batman v Superman did. Like it made money, but not the money they hoped. It didn't make the money they hoped, but it still made a boatload of cash. And what it tells me, if people go to see Justice League, is that they're not burned by BBS, uh, and that's a positive sign for DC because it means that people are willing to give them another chance. And uh, go ahead, Pete. I was gonna say I also think that like you you have to think about we always look at these things through the context of us like through people who are intimately paying attention to comics and pop culture news, whereas like I think the average viewer like their percep like people's perception is based on the last thing they saw so often you know like Marvel has one bad two or two bad two two three bad shows right and they're like oh Marvel's over right it's all over. I feel like the fact that Wonder Woman was so good, that means a lot to a lot of average viewers. And I think that there will be people who will go into Justice League thinking like, oh, okay, Wonder Woman was good. So I see it as they still remember Batman being bad when Wonder Woman was something separate um, because of the way that it was. It it wasn't trying to be intertwined in the the cinematic universe as much as the other two as much as as um batman versus superman so i think that going into this people are like people know that like people who saw wonder woman are like hey this was like their own it was its own kind of thing whereas people who also saw batman versus superman are going to go into it expecting okay if this is something that's connecting the larger the to the larger universe it's not something like that's going to be like wonder woman and so it's something that i'm going to go in and with low expectations 
I, I think that there's definitely some validity to what you're saying, especially considering, and by the way, you know, not everyone's on the internet, but the word of mouth about Justice League has been awful. You know, there's no denying that. And someone who's interested in the movie probably has heard from someone else or from, you know, a passing Facebook comment or somewhere in their travels, hey, this movie looks like trash, you know, or maybe they made that determination for themselves. I think that despite that, people get swept in the moment of things. Justice League is a moment. And I think people go see it. The question is, what do people do when it's just Aquaman? A character that people don't like. A lot of people think he's a joke. Uh, does Justice League do enough to make that character interesting for people to want to go see the film? Um, are people burned by Justice League enough that they don't care anymore? Those are all questions that we have to wait and see the answers to. But to me, I think that Jeff Johns and Diane Nelson are doing their very best to turn the tide and change the way we look at DC's film slate so that we see positives where we before saw negatives. I mean, Pete, your your approach to this conversation is totally different now that we're talking about a world in which Jeff Johns is in charge. Sure, totally. I mean, because it's it, because that's what I said before, right? Is like the whole thing that's so maddening about this is that they're just making bad decisions. You know, and like they're making them haphazardly and they seem to be made without any forethought. And they're just like, well, people are going to go, you know, the, the sales are fine. So who cares if they suck? And I think Jeff Johns obviously gives a shit. He obviously has history at DC and with these characters. And, you know, he tried to get involved with this years ago and they wouldn't let him. So he went and sought out other opportunities and proved that he could do this. So like, obviously, this has been his like plan for a long time in my mind. And I, based on what we saw with Wonder Woman, like, I have every reason to put faith in him, you know, and that, like, he, he's a, I know he's a talented writer, obviously, but that he's also capable of, of writing a screenplay that works and that he knows what he's doing in this realm, you know, um, because I'm also not into really into the DC TV stuff. I just know that people like it. So, you know, I, yeah, I, obviously my, my tenor is totally different because I have faith in him. I don't have faith in the leadership that gave us Man of Steel, Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad because they're not good movies and they don't understand the characters that they're about. And that's the thing that rubs me the wrong way the most, right? Is like even more so than my whole, uh, opinion about how I feel like the Fox movies feel embarrassed by their subject matter. I still think that they at least get it and like are attempting at reaching the core of what it is and presenting it in a way that's palatable to people. Right. And whether or not I agree with their choices all the time, I don't feel like they just have a fundamental disunderstanding or lack of interest in understanding the things that they're working with. Whereas that's clear to me with the leadership at uh, Warner Brothers post um, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, right? Because that was a very much a, we have a very talented director who wants to make a Batman movie. We're going to let him make it. And ever since then, the suit decisions have been just so obviously done by people that are motivated by money and not by making something that's actually of quality or that have any relation to the source material. My final thought is that ultimately movies uh, and especially movies that are comic book based that are sequential, that have 
you know, that are just a part of a larger puzzle live and die by producers understanding of the characters, why comic books work and what it's going to take to make this movie work on its own, but also stand as a piece of something that's bigger than just it. That is very complicated. At, we've always had sequels, but it's never been this complex before in filmmaking history to make stuff like this. And it's a testament when they get it right to just how much work goes into this stuff. So when I see Batman Superman not being good or Man of Steel not being good, there's also the recognition that they worked really hard. They just didn't work that smart. Now, with Jeff Johns at the helm, I think you can expect to see more heart in these films, more compassion going into the process, uh, and just a general better understanding of who these characters are and what makes them tick. Wonder Woman is a perfect example of that. However, I don't think that that needs to mean that there is no interconnected story and that there's no forward movement of the universe as it grows. I don't think that means we shouldn't get Justice League movies. I don't think that means that you can't have cameos. I don't think any of those things have to go away just because they're trying to make movies that matter on their own. I think that can work and you can also have – you can have it all. And I think Marvel has proven that. And DC, that's the way forward in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's This what- has been Sean Soapbox. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's what you see in good comics, right? You know, it's like you made that point about like that's what DC's trying to do now with Rebirth. I feel like that's how you do a successful superhero book, right? It's like the whole thing is you want to have the solo series stand on its own and not have to be connected to everything else. You know it exists in that universe. You don't need to remind us all the time. But you obviously are still going to have stories where you need all the characters to unite because it's a threat that one of them can't handle on their own. You know, like you do a dark side movie, that's the Justice League story, right? Like there are totally threats like that that require the League to get together and and deal with them and that should be something that's exciting um and well executed but i don't think it needs to be in every single thing but again there are so many natural pairings that like if they did you know give us another good wonder woman movie we get a good solo batman movie a good solo superman movie and then there was a reason to tell a trinity story that could be really good i don't think there's any problem with that i think it's just all a matter of making decisions that are calculated and that makes sense that aren't motivated by let's do the next thing because we we can or because we think it's the move to do right people want a justice league movie let's make one no like earn the justice league movie make me want a justice league movie don't give it to me because you think i want it yeah uh totally agree and i think that that's a good place to uh wrap up this conversation i look forward to the future of dc i am anxiously awaiting justice league whether it's going to be good or bad uh, I just want to see these characters together on screen. I'm a sucker. We've established that. Uh, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Aquaman pirate movie. Uh, screw you, Phil. So with that, oh my God, that would be amazing. <laughs> anyway, uh, if you want to write in to tell us what you think about uh, where the DC universe is going on film and whether or not you are excited for Justice League and whether or not you will continue to watch these films post-Justice League or anything else we talked about here. Uh, you can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, where we are a five-star rated podcast. Um, 
and you can leave us a rating if you'd like. We're on all other podcast hosting platforms as well, where you can check us out. Uh, we are at the Comics Pals, wherever your social media is sold. So you can hit us up on there. And last but not least, we are on YouTube, where there is a ton of exclusive content. It's growing and growing by the day because we've got Pals Plays that go up every day um, that are worth your time and you should check out. Uh, and then a bunch of other comic-related stuff that we've got that's exclusive that you should check out, like our History of the Defenders video, and there's more stuff coming like that real soon. So jump on now and uh, leave us that sweet subscribe. Like the video, share it with your friends, drop us a comment, all that good stuff that we do on YouTube. So let's start with the plugs. Uh, real quick, I'm going to plug Ryan O'Sullivan and Plaid, Plaid Klaus's Void Trip. That's coming out November 22nd. So mark that date on your calendar. Pick it up. It's a good book. Show the boys some love. And if you're going to be at New York Comic Con, they're doing the signing. So apparently, maybe they'll have copies of the first issue. I'm not sure how that I works. I think it's a it's a it's a preview. They they have copies of a of a preview that they they're gonna hand out and sign. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah, I mean, if you're on the East Coast and New York Comic Con, go and we'll be there. So come find us. Say yes. hi. Pete, take it away. Cool. Uh, so yeah, thanks again for joining us here on episode. Uh, what is it? Forty nine. 49. God, old here. 49 of the Comics Pals. Um, and if you guys are video gamers, please check out our sister show, The Video Game Pals, which me and Sean are on every, uh, comes up every day after the day, uh, that Comics Pals post. So you can go check that out if you haven't already. We work real hard on it. It's, it's a good show. I think it's, it's really starting to come along. So you go check that out. Let us know what you think about it. Uh, as Sean said, you can check out Pals Play over on YouTube, which, uh, is with me and Thompson, who's another one of the guys from the Video Game Pals. Every Monday through Friday, uh, we're playing all kinds of games and um, by the time this posts we'll be like a day or two away from the first episode of our uh, Until Dawn series that we're doing for October so you can go check that out and um, if you want to get at me on social media I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram you can uh, get at me and talk to me about you know any of the stuff we talked to about today video games life whatever you want hit me up cool Phil I want to plug pizza and beer, you know, the good shit. Just, you know, go out and get a pizza and I get some beer and, you know, just hang out. Okay. You can also find him at Cyber Beep Up. <laughs> That's true. And you can also find our friend Kale, who's, uh, you know, traversing the globe at Toto in Tome. That's T-O-T-O-I-N-T-O-W. Oh, Marco, go for it. Um, you can find me on Instagram at woe is Marco and on Twitter at woe is Marco underscore where I, uh, apparently tweet when I'm drunk. Um, oh yeah, Marco's a good tweeter when he's drunk. Marco tweets yeah. poetry when he's drunk. I tweet poetry. Um, who, who knew? I, I sure didn't. <laughs> <laughs> You're a poet and you didn't know it. As I say. Uh, and for me, I am at Sean Soapbox on Twitter only. Uh, you can write to me to ask me how my own Void Trip is going. Uh, I'll be there real soon. Send them uh, some bottles of rum. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. <laughs> no. <laughs> screw that. Uh, and we'll see you at New York Comic Con if you're going to be there. Tune in next week because we're going to be talking about our experiences at New York Comic Con. All the cool people we got to talk to. All the massive news that dropped. We'll be talking about that stuff on the next episode of the Comics Pals. That'll be episode number 50. Uh, so you don't want to miss that. It's going to be a big one. All four yeah. of us will be there with the Lombard Plus, Boys. 
yeah, Longbox Boys, Thompson from the Video Game Pals will be there. And I'm thinking I want to try and do some kind of a vlog. So if you come find us, you could like be in a video or something that's going to go on our YouTube channel. What so up? do that shit. Come find us. It'll be fun. We'll give you a sticker. If we if we like you. Only. Yeah, and we got yeah. a new sticker, so check it out. So with that, we're the Comics Pals signing off. Take care, guys. Wubba dubba wub dub. Peace. Peace. Oh, man. Ha, 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 ha.